בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוך השם, we're back in Miami, we have the, בעזרת השם, hopefully the last part of this particular Mishnah, and we're actually almost completing the tractate, the perek, the chapter of this Mishnah, chapter 5, there's only, I believe, one Mishnah after this one in chapter 5, and... Then technically, uh, according to the uh, original Nusach, uh, that's actually the end of Pirkei Avot, but the Chachamim added another uh, Perek, another Perek, Perek Shesh, uh, sixth, a sixth chapter to the Mishnah, uh, they added, uh, where each one of the Mishnayot is very, very dense, very deep, lots of things to learn from. It could literally be uh, three, four, five Shulim per Mishnah, and Bezat Hashem, we're going to go through those as well. Uh, number one, because I'm not in a hurry to complete it. I really like Pirkei Avot. It's, it's, it's the foundation of, uh, of all of Musal. Number two, the teachings here in, in chapter six actually are, uh, in my opinion, uh, you know, just uh, just as significant as anything else in the, in the rest of the Mishnah. Um, so there's a lot to learn from it. Uh, it talks about... Uh, how do you get Keter Torah? How do you get the crown of Torah? Uh, how do you uh, get to Allah Abad? Different, different, really, really interesting things. Uh, and um, some pretty uh, precise advice. Um, but this particular Mishnah that we're up to, and Bezal Hashem almost completing tonight, is uh, Mishnah 525. Hey, Chaf and uh, we're continuing with, this is number four out of this Mishnah, the fourth lecture about this Mishnah. And it's in essence the life journey of a Jew. As I was saying moments ago before we uh, started rolling the, the camera, this generation, I believe, uh, is very, very unique. Uh, and how we say that uh, is an understatement, but... The Gemara sages tell us that there are certain conditions that need to happen before Mashiach comes. Uh, one is En Ben David Ba. It keeps you know, each time it talks about Mashiach. It says that En Ben David, meaning the son of David, the descendant of David, is not going to come until, and they give you different requirements that are going to happen. For example, one thing the Torah tells us is that until everyone is broke. Until everyone is broke. And everyone always asks, well, how is everyone going to be broke? Look, right now it's the opposite, actually. You rabbis are saying that the Mashiach is close, but uh, he has, everybody has to be broke before Mashiach comes. So how could it be? Everybody's making, right now, historically speaking, I believe we are the richest uh, people in the history of, 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 of the world, at least recorded. Um, as a human population, not just as a specific nation or so on. There's specific nations that were much richer. But as a human population, I believe, even though there's still a billion people that are uh, hungry every day, uh, the, uh, there's a large part of the world has uh, left the um, lower class and has uh, joined the middle class. And an enormous amount of people have joined uh, the upper class. In fact, last generation's upper class is now middle class. 
So how could it be that right now with the, uh, according to my dear friend Amos, who tells me once in a while that the stock market is at all-time highs. It's still at all-time highs or crash since we last talked? It's even higher now. Okay. Baruch Hashem, I stopped following it. My, my addiction to the stock market ended after 16 years. Uh, so, um, but that's really, sometimes when you make a drastic change in your life, really the only way to move on in your life is to make a drastic change. And that's one of the things that's very difficult for people is that they always want to put one foot in, one foot out. You know, uh, they, they, they want to be, uh, they want to do tshuva, but they want to hang out with their old friends still. You know, they, they want to be honest, but they still want to have a few loans on the side to people they're not allowed to lend money to because they're Jewish. And so on and so forth. So, stock market is at all-time highs. Real estate is also at all-time highs. Banks are lending money to whoever has even something that resembles credit. Uh, student loans are at historical highs, even though the education level has deteriorated to a level that no one ever thought is even possible of how you're going to pay thirty, forty thousand dollars for tuition and still leave college retarded. This is not my definition. You just see what these kids say. They graduate college, and you see some of the interviews. They interview some of these kids. And you ask them, who is the vice president? They don't know. What's the capital of the United States? They don't know. Basic questions that you should know by at the very least. Maybe if you don't know it in, in junior high school... You should know it by high school. If you don't know it by high school, you got higher level education. You you you, you spent a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in education. By now, you should know the capital of your country. Well, let me check on Google. Can you spell Google? No, not really. I just spell the first letter. I know the first two letters, and then Google fills out the rest. People don't know how to spell. People don't know how to spell. What's nine times nine? Nine out of ten people don't know. Nine out of ten people do not know what nine times nine is in their head. They'll do it. They'll use a calculator. But they graduated school and they spent a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars on school. But they still come out retarded. They still come out with the same education that we had in Israel twenty-five years ago, in fifth grade, in fourth grade. When I came to this country. I only had fourth grade level education. So I came here, it was fifth grade. But the math that I knew by fourth grade was equivalent to high school math in America. And this was 30 years ago. It only got worse since then. Today, maybe we know serial names. And serial colors, Captain Crunch is yellow. The public school system has been a disaster, but unfortunately sometimes the yeshiva system has not been so much better. You have a lot of kids graduating yeshiva without knowing how to spell, without knowing how to do basic math, without knowing basic history. That's not education. Yes, we need to learn Torah. We need to know it's the basics of the world. You live in a country, you need to know the language. People that force themselves to 
not teach their kids the language in school. I understand, but you have to teach them somewhere. Okay, you don't want to, you don't want to take up Torah time to teach them English? No problem. Where is he going to learn how to speak to people? He has to learn somewhere. Because the reality is that if he's 18 years old and the only language that he knows is Yiddish or Hebrew, he's not going to make it, he's not, he's not going to fare very well unless he stays in that system for the rest of his life. And statistics show it's not likely. He's not likely to stay in that system for the rest of his life. A lot of people, unfortunately, are going off the derech. And that's part of the reason, because of the poor education system, because they meet some, uh, some kid that left the derech four or five years before them, and he already knows English, and they think, wow, look, he's a genius, he knows English. He knows who the president of the United States is. Wow, look, this guy is Gdolado, he knows the president. They view small, minor things as a big deal. And the reason why is because the education system is, 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 is making a mistake thinking that if we simply don't tell people, it doesn't exist. It's like you play a game when you're a little baby, and you close your eyes, and you think that after you close your eyes, everybody disappears. So in this generation, we have an education system that's a failure, unfortunately, both in the secular and the religious world. Some in the religious world are doing better. Some are doing worse. But yet, people are finding new ways to make more money. As I said, the schools today cost more money than people make in a year. If you want to send your kid to a decent college, you have to be a millionaire. You have to, or you have to have the uh, borrowing power of a millionaire. Because you have to borrow a bunch of money that you really can't afford to pay back. And kids are leaving, you know, graduating school with basically useless degrees that they're never going to use, like communications or English degrees. You live in America. You should have an English degree by the time you're in fifth grade. That means you know how to speak English. If you need to go to college to learn how to speak English, you're retarded. There's something wrong with you. You should have learned it in fifth grade. There's a punctuation system. It's not such a hard a language to learn. Read a few books, you'll learn. You don't need to spend a quarter million dollars to learn English. But the reality is, is that most kids go to school to party. And the stupid parents pay for it. And you see that the grades have improved, but... The education is deteriorated. And this is not my opinion. This is actually reported. This is documented. This is... The universities themselves have reported this stuff. As long as you pay the bill, they'll give you an A. So now, you also notice that the universities themselves... I remember when I was running a hedge fund. We were trying to get some institutional clients. And what kept amazing me what kept just fascinating me is that the biggest institutional investors, the richest, the wealthiest, the best of the best, the ones that everyone wanted as a client, who? The universities. The universities, Yale, Harvard, Columbia, all those universities, those were the best clients. Why? They had billions and billions of dollars and money just kept pouring in, like there was, like there were, like literally, 
it was garbage everywhere else, and everybody was throwing their garbage to the university. Literally, it's coming in garbage pails. Every year they have more money and more money to invest. And the dream of every person that manages money is to get one of them as a client. You get one of them as a client, you're set. You're set, you're done. You don't have to get any more clients. Why? They'll just keep giving you more money. Because they have nothing to do with it, literally. They have billions and billions of dollars. Why do you have so many billions of dollars? You're an education system. Use it for education. Why is it, why is it a top university, also a top investor? What does one thing have to do with the other? What do you need an extra $30 billion for? Extra, $30 billion. Build something. Do something. Get some better teachers, for heaven's sake. Convince the kids to stop drinking and taking ecstasy before class. But our wealth did not help our IQ. In fact, it probably has the opposite effect. So real estate is at all-time highs. The stock market is at all-time highs. University costs are at all-time highs. University bank accounts and investment accounts are at all-time highs. You literally see that every monetary system is, mamash, like everything relating to money, every investment is at all-time highs or close to it. So how is everybody going to go broke at the same time? Because that's one of the requirements, according to the sages, that is going to happen before Mashiach comes. Now, of course, some people are going to tell you, no, it doesn't have to happen. It's a possibility. In my opinion, it's a requirement. My opinion is worth two cents, like I told you guys yesterday. But in my opinion, based on my minimal logic that I have, I think it's a requirement. And the reason why is because in order for the Mashiach to come, there's going to have to be an enormous tsunami wave of tshuva. An enormous tsunami size wave of tshuva. People having to do tshuva. Forced to do tshuva. They didn't do it on their own, so they're forced to do it. When do people do tshuva? When disaster strikes. People don't do tshuva when they're making millions. You never heard a guy say, oh, I just won the lotto. I can't wait to go to Bet Knesset. I just got a contract from AIG for $2 million. I can't wait to donate my ma'asel to help some Jews do tshuva. You never hear such a thing. It's not even like a myth. It's not even like a story people say, you know, many, many years ago, such a thing happened. A guy won the lotto and he donated money. It never happens. Like, not even in a fairy tale. You're not even going to tell like, a story like that to your little kid. Because your kid's going to Abba, you're full of it, Abba. Tell me the story about the dinosaurs and the unicorns. It's easy to believe than a guy that's rich actually doing tshuva. It's easy to believe. It's easy to believe Power Rangers and Ninja Turtles than a rich guy doing tshuva. Why? You don't learn anything from being rich. You learn anything from everything, from going broke. And that's why I tell people all the time the best thing that ever happened to me was going broke. As hard as it is for people that are not broke to understand, it's the best thing that ever could, that could ever happen to you. Why? You're left with one thing. What is that? God. You don't have God, you literally are broke. You have nothing. Because God comes for free. So that's why I think that in order for the Mashiach to come, Everyone has to go broke. 
because that's the only way that Hashem, again, my own minimal human flawed logic, can calculate that you're going to have a wave of tshuva that I would believe Hashem would want before He brings Mashiach and everyone runs out of time. Because if you don't do tshuva before Mashiach comes, there's no tshuva after Mashiach. So how could everyone go broke? Very simple. If my human mind can figure out of two ideas off the top of my head, there's an infinite amount of them. One thing is currency. The predominant currency of the world is the U.S. dollar. Whether people like it or not, whether they like Bitcoin, Schmidtcoin, Euro, or the Yen, or anything else. Bottom line is the U.S. currency is what dominates the world today. And it's not going to change. It will require a world war in order to change currency. It has nothing to do with financials. Many people are naive enough to think that some other currency, whether it be digital or some other country, could actually replace the dollar. They don't understand that this is, has nothing to do with financials. It has to do with power. It has to do with war, weapons, and so on. And also, the, the, the currency that rules is usually the ones that everyone uses. But why does everyone use it? Because everyone borrowed money in that currency. So that's the reason why the U.S. government is also the biggest, they owe the most amount of money. Because they sold bonds, which is debt. They sold bonds to all of the countries. So for example, the, their, their biggest partner is the one they hate the most. Who is it? China. But China can't get out of the partnership. Why? Because in order for them to get out of the partnership... They'd have to sell all the debt. It's not like, oh, listen, send us a check, make it payable to China, Inc. It's no, no, no. They have a bond. They have an account, just like you have a stock. There's something called a bond. And a bond is, in essence, a security that is saying this entity owes you this amount of money. And if you want the money back, you have to sell back this bond. You have to sell back this, let's call it, certificate. But with bonds, since they trade in the treasury bills, T-bonds, and so on, there's a few different types. Since they trade in the open market, when a large bondholder sells, it affects the market. When a bondholder like China holds something like this, it's impossible for them to get out. Because by the time they sell 10%, the remaining 90% that they have will crash by 30 to 40%. By the time they sell 20%, the remaining of what they have will crash by 70 to 80%. Meaning, it's like committing murder, but you end up committing suicide too. So everyone dies. doesn't make any sense. That's why the U.S. currency can never, it cannot change without a war. Once there's a war, then things can change. That's also what happened, by the way, before World War II. Before World War I, the leading economy was Germany. But after World War I, they got punished and they were forced to pay back the debt or the cost of the damage that they caused. The Germans caused a lot of damage in the First World War. So America and the other countries teamed up on them and said, you have to pay back all, all the damage that you caused everyone else from your weapons. You have to pay back. This destroyed the German currency to the point where it literally dropped by almost 100%. Similar to what ha what's happening in Venezuela for the last few years. 
where by the time somebody realized that he needs to buy bread, he would have to fill up an entire crate full of coins. But by the time he got to the store with all the coins that he had, the price of the bread, inflation hit something called hyperinflation, which means that things kept going up in value because the currency kept going lower. By the time he reached the store with a truckload of, of coins to buy a piece of bread, it doubled. He needs another truck. So you see that you don't necessarily need real estate to crash. You don't need the stock market to crash. You don't need anything. What do you need? Your currency to become worthless. If the U.S. dollar becomes worthless, which could happen in an instant, everyone loses. Everyone goes broke in a second. And if I could figure that out, (laughs) imagine what Hashem already knows. So, as far as such a thing like that, everyone going broke, it's not such a far-fetched idea. It's not such a far-fetched idea. The other thing that the Chachamim say that will have to happen before the end of times, is at the end of the Gemara Masechet Sotah, it says, Chutzpah there's going to be an uh, exorbitant amount of rudeness. Truth will be hated. Wine will be pricey. And all types of other conditions. But we see that the rudeness, the chutzpah, is not just rudeness where you would imagine where for, let's say, a young kid steals the chair of an old man. Where in the old days, old days, a generation ago, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, an old man goes on a bus, all the kids get up, not just one. All of them get up, sir, sir, please, sir. Sir, please, have my seat, have my seat. Didn't matter if you were tired, you just came back from football practice, or it didn't make a difference. See an old man, everyone knew. Jewish or not Jewish, everyone knew. Old man comes, old woman comes, get up, let him sit. In fact, even if a woman came, didn't have to be old. The opposite gender came, oh, man, please, please, have a seat. Today, the kid steals, steals the seat from the old man. Today the kid curses out the old man. Today there are shows on his on the internet and on, 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 on television. For anyone foolish enough to still watch those, and where they literally spend time making fun of old men and old women. So that's the that's the obvious chutzpah that we think. But there's other chutzpah. The other chutzpah, Rabotai, is the chutzpah of the nations. Where for the first time in history we see that everything is upside down mamash. You don't have to be a genius. You don't even have to be religious. You don't even need to know this Mishnah. You simply know something doesn't fit. There's something wrong in the water. For the first time in history, the non-Jews are pretending to be Jews. How many times have I told you this over the last 6 to 12 months? For the first time in history, the non-Jews, there are many, there are countless non-Jews that are pretending to be Jews. To such an extent that they literally, you don't even know they're not Jewish. They come to a Chabad center, they look black and white like they just saw the Rebbe at the oil. They have the payas, they have the beard, they have everything. The guy is not Jewish, he's as far from a Jew as Antiochus was. 
No conversion, no even intention to convert. There's one non-Jewish guy that I know from Florida. He's been like this for almost 10 years. So they ask him, uh, why don't you convert? You come to Shabbat, you come to our Chabad over here every week. Why don't you convert it? Ten years. By now, the Bedin should have accepted you. He goes, no, I can't. Why? Oh, my, uh, my wife is a Christian missionary. We go to church together on Sunday. And yet they let this guy come to the Beknesset. Calls himself Avram. <laughs> you think he's the only one? It's countless of them. It's countless guys and girls that are pretending to be Jewish. What makes it worse? For the first time in history, for the first time in almost 6,000 years, the Jews are pretending to be Goyim. If it didn't break your heart to know that you don't even know who's Jewish anymore, in the Jewish community... It's even sadder to know there are many Jews that you can't tell that they're Jewish. Because they work really, really hard to pretend they're not Jewish. I saw an uh, independent uh, documentary about kids going off the derech. And the kid says he grew up in a religious family in Israel, very, very frum, very everything, lost his mind, got off the derech. And he says, my dream is to get American citizenship. That's his dream in life. He lives in Eretz HaKodesh. He has the grave of the Rambam, the Ramban, Rabbi Akiva. All the giants of giants, Rabbi Yosef Karo, around the block from him he has. In Tveria, in Haifa, all over Israel, there's this Kodesh Kodeshim. My dream, my dream in life is to move to America and become an American citizen. Choban Bet HaMikdash. You have kids today in America. They say they go to yeshiva. You look at them like, what yeshiva did you go to? In, uh, the one in Harlem? Which one did you go to? The, the, the one in the... Where, 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 where's, where's this yeshiva? In Kuwait? Where's this yeshiva? Where'd you learn with this behavior, this clothing, this everything? First time in history we have people pretending to be Jews, people pretending to be Goyim, people pretending to be a lot of things. Alma de Shikha, Chazal says, world of lies. One guy came to a couple of the shurim we have. I see him on the internet. He makes a live video of himself, so you get a pop-up. And you see him and his friend rapping like they're Tupac Shakur. Him and his other Jewish friend, he calls himself religious, by the way. He believes he's religious. He has a, he has a tzitzit all the time on the outside. He is the kippah, religious. He says he's religious. You see him and his other Jewish friend, doesn't look so religious. You see them both rapping, going back and forth. Tupac Shakur. Saddest things that I've ever seen in my life is two kids pretending, two Jewish kids pretending to be black rappers. 
This is what we have. This is what we have, Rabotai. Baruch Hashem, we have people like Nisim Black that use the talent to sanctify Hashem's name. But for every Nisim Black that we have, we have a million ones that want to be black. They don't want to be the Nisim part. They want to pretend. They want to pretend to be M&M. But they keep on. It's sad. Saddest thing in the world. See, kids don't even know what they even have in their hand. You have the winning lotto ticket in your hand, but you want the uh, the poison that the guy next door is selling. So the journey of a Jew is one thing that forces a person to evaluate where he stands, where he stands in comparison to where he should be, where he stands in comparison to his generation, where he stands in comparison to his ancestors. And if a person says, no, no, I'm not connected to my ancestors, that person is clueless, has no future. Because if you don't know where you came from, you definitely don't know where you're going. So, Rabbi Yehuda ben Tema told us already that at five years old you begin to learn scripture, at ten, Mishnah, at thirteen, you become obligated to observe the commandments, at fifteen you start learning Gemara because your brain is now ready to start evaluating things, at eighteen you start looking for a wife, get married, at twenty you start pursuing, some say a livelihood, others say a bigger share of the Torah, more amal the Torah, because right now it's still before kids, or at least still before the bigger responsibility, the bigger bills. But Rashi actually says, no, no, the reason why it says, Ben Esrim Nirdov, that a 20-year-old begins to pursue, it's not that he pursue, it's that they actually start pursuing him from Shemaim, false sins that he made for the first 20 years, that he didn't get punished for. Because a person doesn't get punished, in this world, during his first 20 years, for the sins he made in this life, he only starts getting punished for them after 20 years old. It's not that he doesn't get punished. He just doesn't get punished for the first 20 years in this world. But what if a kid dies at 15 years old and he's still a waste seed? Then he will get punished in the next world. Simple. But at 20 years old, a person needs to do serious, serious tshuva. Because it's the one time he has almost 100% siyata dishmaya. But it's also a time that if he doesn't do tshuva, some of his past is going to start chasing him. Then it says at 30 years old, he attains full strength. This is when a person should start teaching. Because the Midrash Shmuel says that at 30 years old, a person has attained enough experience and know-how to influence others. One of the most important things that you need to know how to do if you're going to teach is to influence others. Because if your ability to influence other people is nil, you should not teach. Because you'll just be talking to yourself. Ben Arbaim Lebina, a 40-year-old, attains understanding at this stage a person can start 
getting to a point where if he's been studying Torah his whole life, he's now at 40 years old, able to understand the law and rule, actually arrive at the truth himself. He's been, he's been uh, st- studying this whole time. In fact, if by 40 years old, the Arizal says, if at, you've gone over the entire Gemara, the entire Mishnah, the entire Chumash, the entire Tanakh, you've, the entire Shulchan Aruch, after you've gone over all of those things, but not just you looked at the book on the outside and said, oh yeah, this one cost me $700, this one cost me $27, this one cost me... Thir-. No. Like you actually went in, in the pages, you read all the stuff that it says inside, and you understood, better or for worse, most of it. Then at 40 years old, you're allowed to study, you have to, you could start studying Zohar. At 40 years old, you can start studying the Zohar. Unfortunately, people today don't like to listen to the Arizal. Even though he's the one that gave us the inner secrets of the Zohar, of what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai actually meant 2,500 years ago, we didn't know until the Arizal came. And the Arizal himself says, don't study what I said until you've perfected everything else, until you've mastered everything else, until you've gone over everything else, and you've also attained life experience, which means you're at least 40 years old. A lot of people like to skip that part of the instructions. They want to start with the Zohar. They don't know Parashat Shavua, but they want to start with the Zohar. That's why a lot of people get confused. Because if you study something that's so far above and beyond you, all it's going to do is confuse you. That's why when I asked my Rav one time, what do you think about, I wanted to buy some books. And uh, I've always heard about Morin Nebuchim. I've always heard about a uh, guide for the perplexed by the Rambam. Very intellectually stimulating book. Some geniuses have said this is genius. People like it, this, that. So I said to my house, what about this? I want to get it. I said, you can get what you want. Just don't ask me any questions about it. I said, what? I asked you about everything. He goes, yeah, about that, don't ask me. I said, why not? He says, because it's not something you're supposed to study now. Meaning, he's calling how it is. I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. You want to buy the book? Buy the book. But you're not going to understand it. You're not at the level to understand what you're going to be reading. Which means that if you're going to read it, you're more likely to become a kufel than to become a tzaddik. And that's why, believe it or not, a lot of guys that have gone off the derech, it was after guys were perplexed. Not after they read the whole thing. They read the first few pages, the first few paragraphs. It confused them so much because they have no real foundation of real knowledge. Turned everything upside down. And what do they say? No, the Rambam agrees with me. So there are certain things that you have to be patient before you study them. But who's going to listen to me anyway? They don't listen to the Arisa, they're going to listen to me. We agree. So Ben Arbaim, at 40 years old, the Gemara in Maseret Avodah Zarah says 40 also indicates a few other things. We see that Moshe Rabbeinu was in Mount Sinai 40 days, 40 nights. We see that the Mabul started after 40 days, at the time of Noah. We see that 40 continues to reappear 
in the Torah. The number 40 is a significant number. It's symbolic for renewal, for purity, for achievement. And the Gemara in Masechet Avodah Zarah, page 5, bit 5b, says that a student will only understand what his rabbi actually was teaching him after 40 years. After 40 years. That's why it's sad sometimes you see people, they come to a few shurim, they're with you for six months, a year, two years, and then they leave. They don't come back anymore. Saddest thing in the world. Not because you need a crowd. Like I told you, we're not looking for fans. Because you invest an enormous amount of time into people and you know that most of the stuff you said, they're not going to understand for another five years. They're not going to understand for another ten years. They're not going to understand it. Because if they did, they would have never left. If they actually understood what they have, not only they wouldn't have left, they would have tracked you down and followed you like, a, like a, someone that's obsessed. Like the Hasidim do with their Rebbe. Why do the Hasidim, a lot of them become Dolim Torah? Why? A lot of Hasidim, real Hasidim. I'm talking about fake Hasidim that just look like Hasidim. I'm talking about real Hasidim. Real Hasidim. Why? Why do they become Dolim Torah? Why do you see people, the Baal Shem Tov, you see how many giants followed him. His students became giants. Baal Shem Tov was a giant. Okay, but a lot of people are big. They don't necessarily have uh, big students all the time. Why does the Baal Shem Tov have such giants as students? Why? Why do the Gdolei Ado, many of the Gdolei Ado, their students were giants? Why? Because the students were smart enough to know one thing. What? You stick to the Rebbe. You stick to the Rebbe. You stick to the Rebbe. Why? He knows better than me. I have a question. He has the answer. You stick to the Rebbe. And the Hasidut, they stick to them so closely, the real Hasidut, they stick to them so closely that even they watch how they eat. They watch how they behave. They watch everything. Because they know that's the right way. That's what I want to be. Also, you see it in today's world, it's interesting that, at least from my perspective, there's a lot more Baalei Tshuva in Israel than there is in the Western world. Oh Hashem, there are Baalei Tshuva in the Western world. But there's a lot more in Israel, percentage-wise. A lot more people are doing Tshuva in Israel than here. And you can't say no because there are more rabbis. It's not true. There's just as many rabbis over here. You can't say, oh no, there's more money there. It's the opposite. There's more money here. Can't say it's easy to be a Jew there. No, not true. It's very easy to be a Jew in America. You have kosher stores in every corner. You could order kosher meat if you want. You have synagogues everywhere, Baruch Hashem. You have yeshivot. You have books in every language you want if you don't speak Hebrew. You have applications. So how come there's so many more Baalei Tshuva in Israel? I actually originally got the idea from Arav Ben Porat. And he's 100% right, but he was making a comparison between Ashkenazim and Sfaradim in Israel. 
I'm looking at it in a different perspective where it's literally just the Western world versus the Eastern world. The difference is, if you look at the people in Israel, when they go to a shiur Torah, first and foremost, people are not spiritually lazy over there. First of all, if somebody has a shiur, there's no such thing as a shiur with three people. When somebody comes to give a shiur and he's well-spoken, it's not a problem to get 50, 100, 150 people last minute. Last minute. When Rabbi Fine came to, uh, to visit his parents for Pesach, one of the people that uh, lives in the area, Tzaddik, likes to do, uh, loves Zikwe Rabim, but he's in Avrech the whole year, so he does all of his Zikwe Rabim, all of his Kirov during the Benazmanim, during the vacations. He sees, every time he sees Rabbi Fine, he gets very excited, he knows the big Chacham. He's like, oh, Rabbi Fine, we have Shiur. When? Right now. You have people? I'll get them. Just sit over here. He sits over there, he starts getting people in the streets. Come, 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 kapara. Come, shoo, shoo. He fills up the place, 50, 100 people in 20 minutes. He gets them off the streets. The kid's on a bicycle. He wants to go, I don't know, go play basketball, soccer, or I don't know, go see his girlfriend or something. No, no, come, kapara. Come, shoo, toa, shoo, toa. The kids get off the bicycle, go. The kids get off the bicycles to go to shoot Torah. He gets them off the streets. Here, you go in their house. They want to go to sleep. You have a shoe in their house. They're sleeping. So first and foremost, you want to do tshuva, you cannot be spiritually lazy. Two, the bigger thing is, you see in Israel, they see a rabbi, I remember when I went there, who am I bechlal, a couple of years ago, I had a couple of shuim over there, Baruch Hashem, every shuim is packed, makes you want to live there, just for the shuim, even if you're attending it. I had one community, say, maybe they got 100, 150 kids, anywhere from 13, 14 to mid-20s. 90% of them were Ethiopian kids, cute kids. And you see at the end of the shoe, they don't know me, these people. Beginning of the shoe, they don't know me. Every kid comes, give me a bracha, give me a bracha. They want to kiss my hand. You don't even know me yet. No, kvodarav, kvodarav. The, the respect that they give a person that knows even a little bit of Torah or looks like they know Torah, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Mamash, every guy, I mean, it's very difficult not to get an ego. You're thinking, yeah, yeah, Kodarav, Kodarav, yeah, Kodarav. Kodarav, yeah, yeah, yeah. You start feeling like Mashiach. All these little kids, all these people want to kiss your hand. Then you realize you're nothing because you still have to go to the bathroom like everybody else. But the reality is, Rabotai, there's Kavod Lachachamim. There's emunah b'chachamim. Rabbi says, people do. I'm not talking about the kofrim, the old, I'm talking about the people that are interested in tshuva, the people that still have a connection to Hashem. Not the people that are living on borrowed time. I'm not talking about those people. In the Western world, unfortunately, people can't wait to find the mistake that their rabbi made. People can't wait to cause sikhsukh between rabbis. They can't wait 
to find, oh, he spoke for three hours? Yeah, over here, he misspelled the word. Yeah, but he spoke for three hours. He made a mistake in one word. So the whole thing's pasul. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing's pasul. Three hours he spoke, he made a mistake. That's not even a mistake, really. But in his eyes, it's a mistake. In her eyes, it's a mistake. No, you're a prejudice. You're a sexist. You're a Nazi. You're whatever, whatever names they come up. They can't wait to destroy you. And once they don't like you, ooh-wah, ooh-wah, they want to make sure that even the marketing companies know about you. They want to make sure everybody knows this guy, Korach. This guy's Bilam. They want to make sure they make the comments. They want to make sure they tell you made a mistake. Oh, yeah, no, the students were in Germany. No, they were actually in Poland. Okay, so there was a nine-minute video. There was one word. I said Germany instead of Poland. You really care? Does it change the story where the kids were? No, but he wants to write a six-paragraph Six paragraph proof that the kids were in Poland instead of Germany. What difference does it make? But that's the Western world. No kavod the chachamim. No kavod the Torah. In fact, the opposite. They can't wait to catch you. They're all waiting for you in the corner. The one minute you slip... Hey, wait. On, on sure number 37, you said something else. What did I say? I don't know, but it sounded like something else. Are you sure it was something else? Maybe it was a different sure? I don't know, but but I'm confused. What confused you? But let's say there's 60 shiurs. How are you still confused after 180 hours of Torah? How are you still confused about Hashem? I don't understand. What have you been doing for 180 hours? You listened for 60 shiurs. What have you been... How are you still confused? I have some people, they send me at least 5 to 10 questions a week. 5 to 10 questions a week. There are certain people, I don't know why, Hashem gives me a soft heart for them. I almost answer every question. A lot of people I don't answer, I don't have time to answer their questions. I'm almost 380 emails behind right now. 380 emails behind, meaning I'm overdue. Others, what can I do? Messages, we did a calculation. We did a calculation. You guys are going to see the numbers soon. Over 350,000 questions we've answered in the last two years. 350,000 questions. Text messages. We even count the emails. It's a waste of time. Some people send, some people send, Five questions a week. You have a soft heart. Yeah, yeah, this guy is, you know, you answer the question, you answer the question. But what drives me crazy is that you've been answering questions for six months. You've been answering questions, you've given them shiurs, 50 hours of shiurs, 100 hours of shiurs, 500 hours of shiurs, depending on how many shiurs they've been watching. Every shiur, Baruch Hashem, two, three hours. You watch 100 shiurs, you have at least two to 300 hours of shiurs under your belt. But then they say, yeah, but this uh, rabbi over here has a seven-minute clip that said the opposite of what you said in this other shiur. I'm confused. What do you mean you're confused? You've watched 600 hours of shiurs. A seven-minute clip confused you?
impossible. Are you, is, is, is the spine even exist? That's it. The whole thing. It's a domino effect. You're made out of glass. 600 hours of shiur, just a seven minute clip through in the garbage. That's this generation. One little thing, one little wind from the wolf and the house falls down. And it's sad. It said, why is this? The reason is, Rabotai Karim, is because in the Western world we have no emunah b'chachamim. We have no belief in the chachamim, we have no belief in the system, we have no respect for the system, we have no respect in the chachamim. And I don't mean the chachamim, me. Hash shalom, I'm not talking about myself. One day, hopefully, I'll become a chacham. I'm talking about Chachamim that when you mention a verse in the Torah and you mention commentary by Rashi, you mention commentary by Rambam, you mention commentary in the Gemara, people don't just take it. Oh, Gemara says it? It's like it's as good as gold. Oh, the Rambam says it? Finished. I understand now. I'm no longer confused. Why? Rambam says yes. If Rambam says yes, it's like God said yes. It's the same thing. Why? Rambam said what God said. He just repeated what he heard in Mount Sinai. It's not like Rambam said, you know what? I'm a little bored. Let me just trick these people. Let me come up with a rule that's going to annoy a bunch of people just to see what happens. Let's let's make this rule. Let's call it kosher. And you know, this kosher rule, we're going to really trick people in this one. We're going to say you're only allowed to eat cows and sheep and deer. And you have to slaughter them a certain way though. But if, if, if the knife is not 100% sharp and you have a little slip, it's not kosher anymore. And we have all these rules just to torture people, to make them spend a bunch of money on mistakes because no one really knows how to slaughter the cow and you don't really know what's happening. So it's just going to be a bunch of dead cows, but no one's going to eat anything. Everyone's going to starve to death. Like people think it's some comedy. Like some people just created these rules because there's nothing else to do. I would say, like I used to say, oh yeah, the rabbis made it. The rabbis said it. What do you think, the rabbis had nothing to do? They just want to make laws just to torture themselves and you at the same time? Does anybody ever sit there and think of these things before they say them? And the answer is no. No one thinks of it. Why? Because if you thought, you'd never say it. Or people tell you, oh, no, there's so many opinions. So many opinions. But I have a question. They ask you a question. Like, oh, no problem. There's an answer for your question. Here's the source. Here's the source. Check. You're thinking, this guy's going to be religious. This girl's going to put on some clothes. She's going to marry a Jew. He's going to marry a Jew. Everybody's good. The guy asked a question, two questions, three questions, four questions, five questions. Whatever he asked, you gave him the answers. You're like, I have the answers. This guy's going to do tshuva. You, you lived in the imaginary life when you thought this. Why? Because sometimes... You give the kid answers, you give the woman answers, and the matter gets worse. It gets worse. Why? Because now he's like, yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. But you know, there's a lot of opinions. You know, there's a lot of opinions in the Torah. There's other opinions. Yeah, but you didn't ask me how many opinions. You asked me what's the answer. Here's the answer. Yeah, but there could be something else though, Right? Yes, there could be something else, and I could be somewhere else, but 
The point is, this is what we have to work with. What's the difference? Like, you wanted an answer, I gave an answer. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not really sure. I don't understand. I just wasted three hours talking to you, and you're not sure? Why did you waste my time? That's because, Rabotai, a tzaddik, someone that wants to get to the truth, a tzaddika, someone that wants to get to the truth, she asks questions to find out how to do it. They ask questions of how do I get what I want done? What's you want? What do you want? I want the emet. How do I get to the emet? How do I get to the emet? How do I make sure that the etrog that I'm going to buy before Sukkot, how do I make sure it's a good etrog? Do I get the Yemenite one? Do I get the Moroccan one? Do I get the Jerusalem one? Do I have to spend a lot of money? Is it okay if I spend little money? How do I know if the dress I'm about to buy at the store is kosher or not kosher? How do I know if um, the tefillah that I'm reading, if it's good or not? How do I know if the teacher I'm learning from is good or not? They want the emet and they want you to help them get there. That's a tzaddik and tzaddika. A rasha, a reshait, also has questions. But their questions are only asked to justify their existing life. The Rasha only asks questions to justify their existing behavior. As soon as your answers contradict their behavior, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of opinions on that. There's a lot of opinions on that. So a person at 50 years old needs to know that it's time for him to use this experience that he has meeting young kids, old kids, and start influencing other people. At 60 years old, he he attains seniority. In fact, the Gemara in Masechet Moed Katan says that somebody that reaches 60 years old should celebrate because they officially did not get the punishment of karet in this world. Because the punishment of karet in this world would mean either they would die before 60 or one of their children would. So if they themselves reach the age of 60, that already means that if they had any karet sins, which most likely they did, at least they didn't get the punishment. Unless Shem they had a kid that died. But also, Meiri says that a person that reached 60 years old should consider that his end is not off. It's not very far off. That he should now spend more time fulfilling his duties towards Hashem. Because the end is very near. A person that's 60 years old should start looking at his neighborhood, at his community, at his children, and realize that whatever he leaves behind is also something they're going to judge him for. 
If he left the community with a bunch of money in the bank, but the community doesn't have a kosher rabbi because they couldn't afford one, but the community doesn't have a kolel or a yeshiva because they couldn't afford one, but his kids are half religious or not religious, his daughter just married a goy, his son is dating a goya, His children, his neighborhood, his community doesn't even know the definition of modesty. And he left the world with a bunch of money. He should know that part of his judgment every single year for eternity will be to review what he left behind. And if he left a bunch of money behind, but also a bunch of people that want to be goyim, even though they were born Jewish, he'll have to pay that deen. Now why would such a person not do something useful with his money? Even if he says he believes in God. This Rabotai is in our parasha. In Parashat Nitzavim, this week's parasha puts everything we just talked about into perspective. Moshe Rabbeinu tells Am Yisrael in Parashat Nitzavim, Atem Nitzavim ayom kulchem lifnei Adonai Eloechem. Rashechem, Shiftechem, Ziknechem v'Shotrechem. Kol ish Yisrael. You are standing here today, all of you, before Hashem your God. The heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all of the men of Israel small children, your women, your proselyte, meaning your converts, were in the midst of your camp, from the hewer of your wood to the drawer of your water. Moshe Rabbeinu says, this Torah applies to every single one of you. The Torah of the convert and the Torah of the natural born Jew, the Torah of the Hasidish and the Torah of the Ashkenazi and the Litvish and the Sephardi and the Yemenite, it's the same exact Torah. The Torah for the poor and the Torah for the rich. Same thing. The rules apply to all of you. But if anyone thought for a moment this only applies to 3,000 years ago, you should forward to verse 13 in the parasha. Chapter 29, verse 13. Where Moshe Rabbeinu Says, Not with you alone do I seal this covenant and this imprecation, but with whoever is here standing with us today before Hashem, our God, and with whoever is not here us today. Meaning the generation of today that's in front of me, Moshe Rabbeinu says, and all the people that will come after. Now if you fast forward a few verses, Moshe Rabbeinu says there's much good for us to get if we do what Hashem wants, but The danger is idolatry. The danger is the God of wood and the God of stone, the God of silver, the God of gold. Why didn't he just say wooden stone? Because wooden stone is Christianity and 
Islam. But that's not the only problem. He also said the God of silver and the God of gold. God of money, God of kavod. Our own bad midot is what can take us away from this covenant. And why would somebody in their right mind that knows that God exists, that knows that God runs the world, why would they stay on this path? Moshe Rabbeinu says the following, Moshe Rabbeinu gives us an atomic bomb, telling us one of the most dangerous things that a Jew could ever do to themselves. It's literally committing spiritual suicide by simply saying three words. Shalom Yeli. What Shalom Yeli? What Shalom Yeli? Moshe Rabbeinu says, who is the one that will get these punishments because of idolatry and so on and so forth? He says, and it will be where he, this, this person, Here's the words of this oath. Here's what is meant in the Torah. Here's the Shabbat, there's mitzvot, there's all these things. Here's this oath. But he will bless himself in his heart, saying, peace be upon me, peace be with me. Meaning, I'm all okay, I'm, I'm religious in my heart, I'm okay. There's many opinions, there's many opinions in the Torah. You listen to your rabbi, I'll listen to whatever rabbi I won't listen to. You do you, I do me. Shalom Eli, I'm okay. Even if I follow my heart's desires, it's still okay. In order to add the punishment for the unintentional sins of this man to that of his intentional sins. So Rashi says over here, this is spiritual suicide. One of the the people that sends me some really interesting information found this Rashi. I had some. I had the Onkelos version here, but both Rashi and Onkelos say something explosive. They say a person says, "I'm going to be religious in my heart." A person says, "I'm going to be my own rabbi." A person says, "I'm going to do my thing." I don't need to listen to Rav Ovadia. I don't need to listen to Rav Yashiv. I don't need to listen to the Rambam. I'll just pick and choose who and what and when I'm going to listen to who because there's a lot of opinions. The Gemara in Masechet Yoma, page 119, says that a person that does not have a rabbi, God hates him. And people don't like this Gemara because I've said it a few times and people don't like it. They don't like to think that God can hate his children. 109. Yevamot 109. Sorry. People have a tough time understanding that God can actually hate some of his children. But Shlomo HaMelech said it in Proverbs 11.15, V'sonet tokim boteach. That the Hater of handshakes is secure, meaning that a person 
is so confident in himself he decides who and what he's going to listen to. He's not going to listen to a rabbi, to an authority figure. And Agmarah says, such a person, I hate him. Why? Because he can live his whole life making mistakes, deciding what's the truth and what's not, without ever double-checking. Meaning, he has no problem making a mistake and violating my laws. He's not even scared of it. She's not even scared of it. What's the, what's the proof that God hates them? This pasuk. Why this pasuk? Because Rashi and Onkelos, that everyone, Ashkenazi, Hasidish, Litvish, Sephardi, Yemenite, Jews, and even non-Jews, all agree. This is the foundation. You don't believe Rashi, you don't believe Onkelos, you don't believe Torah. You're an atheist. Both Rashi and Onkelos say on this Pasuk, when a person says, I'm going to do what I want. I'm religious in my heart. I'm going to pick what's right and good for me. Then Hashem Barach says to them, now I will add punishment to them. Because in the past they made sins that were unintentional. Because they didn't know there were sins. And I would have overlooked those sins. Because they didn't know it was a sin. The guy didn't know that he's not allowed to do such and such. He didn't know. Hashem says, because he's doing tshuva, I would have just overlooked these few things, just to, because of his tshuva, eventually, he would have done tshuva for it. I'm not going to punish him right away. But now that he says, Shalom Yeli, now that she says, Shalom Yeli, now that she says, ah, peace be upon me, I'll do my thing. You do you, I'll do me, I'll judge right and wrong. You listen to your rabbi, I'll listen to whoever I want. Now the Chachamim says, Hashem says, I will add punishment to her. I will add punishment to him. Why? I would have overlooked the unintentional sins in the past. But now, he has caused me to combine them with the intentional sins that he made and punish him for everything. And Onkolo says this means that Hashem is literally saying that I'll add for him the punishment incurred for the unintentional sins to that of the intentional sins. What does this mean? In simple English, all the accidental sins now become intentional. Where in the past an unintentional sin could have easily been forgiven and perhaps even turned into a mitzvah with a good amount of tshuva. Now a person says, no, I don't want a rabbi. No, I don't want to listen to this guy. No, I'm just going to pick and choose. And disrespects the chachamim, disrespects the sages. Hashem says, now all of your sins are intentional. Why are all your sins intentional? And the punishment is going to be intentional? Because you intentionally violated my children. You intentionally violated my Torah. You chose to make your own Torah. A person that says, says does such a thing, the Pasuk says, This is a person that does such a thing, God's anger goes on him 
And all of the curses in this book, it says in the same Parashat Nitzavim, go upon him, Hashem Yachim. All of the curses in the Torah. So what about if I don't understand? What about if there's something I read somewhere and I don't understand why? I don't understand why we still have to care about shatnez. Why does Hashem really care wool and linen together? There's a little bit of linen, a little bit of wool and the collar of the suit. I have to go take it to some guy to take it out and pay him $15, $20 for it. I don't have my suit for three, four, five days. I don't know. I don't, why, why do I have to... Does Hashem really care about wool and linen? Does He really care about the blanket, the blanket that I sleep in having wool and linen? He really cares, Hashem? That's all He has to do? He cares about wool and linen? So some people say. He can't say so He has the whole world to run. But He cares about my wool and linen. He cares about whether I eat the kosher burger or the not kosher burger. Hashem runs the whole world, but He cares about my burger. That's what people think. Why does He care about my burger? That's a person that says Shalom Yeli. That's a person that says, Hashem is so busy, he doesn't care about what I'm doing. Because I know what I'm doing. Other people, other people, he needs to help them. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to figure out what's... Me and, me and Hashem, we're close. I do it for the dude. I go to the middle of the forest. The snake was right next to me. I didn't do anything. I go, I do it for the dude. In Uman. Right after I go to the prostitute. Right after. All this shtuyot that comes out of people's mouths, they want to make this pretend religion. Say, no, I'm religious. Why are you religious? Because I went to Uman for Rosh Hashanah. I left my wife by herself. That makes me religious. I eat a certain type of this and a certain type of that. All exterior stuff. How much Torah did you learn? How many times you finished the Shas? Never hear a response. Always like crickets. No response. Oh, you mean Gemara? Yeah, yeah, Gemara. How many times you finish it? Oh, this you could finish it? Technically. You read enough books, eventually you complete. How many times you do it? No, not yet. I mean, okay, how, did you finish half? Did you finish a quarter? Did you finish one track day? Did you finish one page? No, but I read the Midrash of last week's parasha. Oh, so you read the Midrash of last week's parasha, but you disagree with the Rambam, though. You read the Midrash, but you disagree with the sage that wrote the Midrash. Like you think because you read the Midrash, you're the same level as the one that wrote it. You think that because you read the halacha, you are now on the same level as the one that wrote the halacha. That's, that's, that's how your thinking works. Shalom yeli. A person says, Shalom yeli, I'm going to decide who, what, when, and how. So what happens when they don't understand? Emunat chachamim is critical in this stage. Why? The Gemara says in Masechet Chagiga, there are certain things that you're not allowed to teach the public. You're only allowed to teach individuals that already know some of the information. One of them is called Maase Merkava. 
Another one is called Maaseh Bereshit. Two subjects. What's Maaseh Bereshit? What's Maaseh Merkava? Maaseh Bereshit is what happened before this world. Not supposed to teach the public beyond anything you guys have ever heard from my shuri. Superficial knowledge you can tell them. There were several worlds before this one. There were six worlds to be exact before this one. Hashem built worlds and destroyed worlds according to the Zohar. But there were certain Chachamim that lived that knew much more than that. So you're not allowed to teach it. Also you're not allowed to teach Maaseh Merkava. What's Maaseh Merkava? It's happening in heaven. What's happening in Shemaim. Not allowed to teach it. Why? People don't understand it. You start teaching them this stuff, they can lose their mind. Either literally or figuratively speaking. Like you just get so confused. So confused, they don't know right, they don't know left, they could go in the wrong direction. But the Chachamim say that the stories of the sages... The stories of the tzaddikim, the life stories, is like ma'aseh merkava. Why? When we learn about the lives of the tzaddikim and how they live their lives, it's like you're learning about what's happening in heaven. Why? Because the character traits that you see from the tzaddikim show you how they were superior human beings. Forget about their intellect, their genius. That's never going to be appreciated enough because the only way you can actually appreciate it, appreciate genius is by being one. You can't say, oh no, no, this rabbi is bigger than that rabbi. You can never say such a thing. Why? You're not in his level or his level. How can you measure either one? In order to evaluate genius, you have to be one. And since the majority of this generation has a brain slightly smaller than the cow, stop evaluating the tzaddikim on an intellect and evaluate them on things you can. What can you? Midot, character traits, behavior. You see something superior. You see certain people that act superior to the rest. They're calm. They're collected under pressure. There's a volcano erupting. But they're like, oh, Baruch Hashem. What? What do you mean? How? How? Everybody's screaming and yelling. And he's, Baruch Hashem, I'm almost finished with the page. How? You see, this is a superior human being. And the Chachamim say, learning the stories of the Tzadikim is like Maaseh Merkava. Why? You see how superior the tzaddikim were? You could only imagine their father in heaven. You could only imagine how superior he is. So when you learn from the tzaddikim, you're learning the secrets. And that's why this parasha says, the hidden are for Hashem our God, but the revealed are for us and our children forever. 
to carry out all the words of this Torah. The Pshat here actually is referring to sins, meaning that the hidden sins, only Hashem knows about them, and He's the only one that's responsible for punishing a person that is sinning in private. And the public sins are for us to deal with, where we are obligated to rebuke each other in order to do tshuva. But there's another interesting thing to learn from here, that it literally says the hidden is for Hashem. This hidden information, this mystical information, there's things that we simply don't understand. If you want to get close to Hashem, you realize that the hidden, it's meant to be hidden. If you don't understand it, that means it's meant for you not to understand it now. You don't have the merit to understand it now. So what do I do if I don't understand it? What do I do if I don't understand it? You rely on the people that do. Who? It's children, it's tzaddikim, it's chachamim. That's who you rely on. Because they know. And even if they don't know, they're much closer to knowing than you are. And if they're doing it, you can bet on that. You can bet on that. When Arav Kotler, Rosh Yeshivat Lakewood, one of the biggest yeshivot in the world, one of the Gdolei Adol, lived in a house most of us wouldn't even want to visit. Looked like a shack. The furniture he had in his house was from, from the days of Antiochus. One time he went away and his lovely Talmidim wanted to surprise him. And while he was away, they went into his house and they replaced all the furniture with brand new furniture. Brand new, pristine, beautiful furniture. Top of the line. For the Kvodarav, it's the least they can do. Giving the rabbi a present. Big thing. Rav Kotler comes back. Takes one step into the house. He sees that the house has changed. The furniture has changed. He steps out of the house because the students are next to him. They want to see a surprise. Rav Kotler steps out of the house and he makes a swear. I swear I will not go into the house until you bring back everything that was in the house and you take all of the stuff out. That's all brand new. Why? It's good stuff. I don't know. You want to replace my Gan Eden with furniture? I'm working my whole life to get Gan Eden. You want me to enjoy this world with furniture? Bring me the furniture from the days of Antiochus. Yes, the, the, the stuff that's broken, bring me that. That's what I want. That's my life. Yeah. Why? This world is only a corridor. Us, the couch squeaks. Ah, honey, we have to replace it. Not replace the screw. Replace the whole couch for $2,000. Because it squeaks a little bit. So you see that a chacham, like a Rav Kotler, that has disconnected himself from material to such an extent that he literally is disgusted by it. He cannot 
me? You want me to get fancy furniture? You want to replace all of my Ganeden? Who said, who says it's going to replace your Ganeden? Just enjoy the furniture. What's the big deal? It doesn't say you're not allowed to have nice furniture. You're allowed to have nice furniture. For him, it was too much. Why? Chas v'shalom, I'm going to enjoy it too much and forget about God. Enjoy a couch too much. Chas v'shalom, maybe I'll forget about God because I'm enjoying the couch too much. That's a superior person. It doesn't matter whether you're religious or not. You see such a thing, that's a superior human being. That is a superior human being by anyone normal's classification. Why? That's a person that's overcome desire. That's a person that's overcome this world. I want to be that. Rav Moshe Shmuel Shapira, Lava Shalom, was one of the leaders at a time where the Sephardi and Ashkenazi world in Israel went to war on a regular basis. Many people attacked Rav Ovadia on a regular basis. A lot of machlokets. Building the Sephardi empire in Eretz Yisrael, Baruch Hashem, where at this stage... They're literally 50% or maybe even more than 50% of the religious world in Israel. When Rav Avadya started, you can count the amount of Sephardi Jews that were religious in one small tiny community. 1,000, 500, few hundred, nothing. What people don't understand is what he did to the entire world of Torah, not just to the Sephardi world. He built yeshivot, Ashkenazi, Sephardi, didn't make a difference. But along the way to build something, the Satan sends a lot of messengers to go against. And a lot of people try to destroy him in different ways. Even if they wore a keeper and a hat and a beard and everything. And one time they came Moshe Shapira, and I said, uh, we're here gathering signatures. We need your signature to go against Ravadia. Rav Shapira is one of the Gdoleado. If he signs this letter, you could be assured many, many others will sign, not even knowing what the argument is, but simply because he said it. People that have emunat chachamim, they don't need to know the reason of why he said yes or no. Allowed, not allowed. If he said it, it must be true. If he said it, he must have investigated it. If he said it, there has to be a reason. People that appreciate chachamim know that chachamim don't just say things just to say them. Like small talk. And what would you do this weekend? How's your wife? Oh, how old is Yankale now? He's three. Oh, Baruch Hashem. They don't have those kind of conversations, Rabotai. Chachamim don't ask you about how Yankale is at three years old. They don't ask. They're too busy doing Gemara in their head. They're too busy trying to figure out Emet. Titen Emet le Yaakov. Giving truth to Yaakov, to Am Yisrael. Can't give truth if you're thinking about your next door neighbor's new car. Or where are you going to go on vacation for Pesach? 
So when they came to Rav Shapira and they said, we're actually going against Rav Ovadia, we need your signature, please. He says, well, before I sign, I'd like to tell you a little story. You know, many years ago, I heard of this Gaon, someone that was, people were talking about him, he's a Gaon in the Torah. I said, who is this Gaon? You have to see this kid, this, this genius, genius young man, rabbi, but he's something special. Ooh, who, who is this? What's his name? Ovadia. Ovadia. Where does he live? And they told me where he lived. I said, I'm going to go visit him. And I went to the area that they told me he lived, and I see his poverty everywhere. But I can't seem to find the house. I can't seem to find, I'm looking for a house. And I can't seem to find the house, he says. But then I see this like shack that looks like a ship container. You know, shipping containers? They don't have rooms inside the shipping containers. It's just one room. But let's say you cut it in half. Shipping container, you cut it in half. And I saw something like that and it had a door. Oh, and there was somebody came out of it. Looked respectable person. And he was expecting me. And it was a young man named Rabovadia. And I went and I sat down with him. Oh, and he welcomed me into. And as soon as we said, I saw that there were some kids in the background. But then when we turned around and we went inside, they all disappeared. Everyone disappeared. I don't know where they went. I didn't really ask any questions. Not my business. But I noticed as we were there, there's no rooms. There's no bathroom. There's no bedroom. It was simply a table with two chairs. It's a bed somewhere, but there's no rooms. There's one chair for me. There's one chair for him. And we start going through the entire Torah. Going through the entire Torah. This one said this, this one said this, I said this, do 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 poop, like mamash. Al Sinai. We're going and we're delving and deeper and deeper and deeper. Really unbelievable Torah. After about 45 minutes or an hour, all of a sudden I hear a little cry. A little baby crying. And I look. There's no baby. Go back in the Torah, it's like a little cry of a baby. And I notice the cry is coming from under the table. And I peek under the table that we've been learning for the last hour of Vajay and I. And I see that it's Rabbanit and six children are under the table. Because there's no other room for them to go anywhere else. There's no money for them to go anywhere. They can't afford to go anywhere. And the Rabbanit is there with six kids letting them know, Abba is studying Torah. We need to be quiet. Until when? Until Abba is finished. And I said at that moment, Someone that could study Torah under these conditions, he's going to be Gdolador. 
Another person saw Ravadya studying in the same house, and he said, I saw he had one kid on one shoulder, another kid on the left shoulder, another kid on the back, another kid he was moving him with his foot, the, the, uh, the, the, the stroller, another one he was holding, and then he had a Gemara that he was reading. And he was in the depth of studying, as if nothing was happening like this. Like it's a perfectly normal condition. As if it was perfectly quiet and the kids weren't screaming and yelling and jumping on its head. And he was inside the Torah. But being a father too. So Rav Shapira looks at the people that came to visit and he said, what about you? Did you study like this Torah? Did you study under these conditions in a shipping container? Do you have a Rabbanit? That is such a Rabbanit that is going to keep the kids quiet so Abba can learn Torah with the visitor? Quiet. Six kids quiet. Under the table, no one even knows you're there for an hour. You have something like that? You study Torah like him? Before we sign, before we sign against this person, did you, I'm going to sign with you, did you do the same thing at least? Are you too busy flying your private jet and using the new Jeep and Mercedes model. From the busha of the story, they all ran away like flies. What a shame. It is to hear when people say, yeah, but that's just one opinion. When one of the greatest Rabbis in history wrote something, said something. It doesn't need to just be Ravadya. It could be Rav Yashiv, it could be Rav Ozner, it could be any of the giants. And he wrote something and people dismiss it like, ah, yeah, he wrote it. Somebody else wrote something else. Ah, there's many opinions. That Rabotai is Shalom Yeli. That's a person that says, peace be upon me, I'm just going to decide who to follow, when to follow, what to do, how to do, I'm okay. You do you, I'll do me. Live and let live. And for that Rabotai, those type of people bring such a horrible tragedy to their to their life. The Chachamim say this attitude only brings tragedy. Rashi says on the Pasuk, this attitude only brings tragedy. Only brings tragedy. It's the source of disaster, Rashi says. When a person thinks peace will be with them, so I have nothing to fear, problems, calamities... That's on other people. Other people get sick. Other people lose money. Other people, nah, it's other people. The Chafetz Chaim says, many people base their entire lives on this foolish notion that there are certain kinds of people that are prone to die 
or prone to have problems, but not them. They are immune from physical or spiritual death. He says there's certain types of people, the Chafetz Chaim says, certain types of people, yeah, you know, he has problems. Yeah, you know, some people just have problems. You know, he, he got married. Yeah, you know, some people, they're just lucky. They're lucky. They get married early. You know, some people, they're rich. You know, it's just he got lucky, so that's why he's rich. You know, his father's rich. That's why he's rich. His mom, she's the great aunt's uncle's sister's neighbor of the Rockefellers. That's why she's rich and tall and short and this and that. They justify and rationalize all the shtuyot in the world, all the nonsense in the world. Just make sure don't give credit to God. Everything but God. And people can live their entire lives with this notion in their life, this belief that everything, no, it's luck, it's fortune, it's just this and it's just that. And Rashi says this is the foundation of disaster. A delusional mindset. A delusional mindset. Where the delusional mindset it makes him believe that he's free to do as he pleases by saying peace will be with me. And therefore God holds him responsible even for the unintentional sins since they are the result of indifference to the magnitude of his sins. What do, we, what do we learn from here mainly? We learn from here that what's in your heart is a big deal. The next part of the parasha says veshaftat adonai elohecha veshamata bekolo kechol asher anochi metzavecha hayom atau banecha bekol levavecha bekol nafshecha veshav adonai elohecha et shvutecha berichamecha veshav bekibitzecha mekol ha'amim asher efitzecha adonai elohecha shama The next part, chapter 30 says, And you shall return to Hashem your God, meaning do tshuva, and listen to His voice according to everything that I command you today. Notice that Moshe Rabbeinu says that I command you today, not that He commanded you today. Other places that He commanded Him. Why does He say I commanded? Because I'm is the rabbi. There was a certain power instilled in the rabbis, the sages that Hashem wanted them to have. You and your children with all of your heart and all of your soul. Then Hashem, your God, will bring back your captivity and have mercy upon you and He will return and gather you in from all of the people to which Hashem, your God, has scattered you. This is actually a prophecy of the end of times. Where Hashem says that once we do tshuva, it won't matter where we live. This is for all of those people that think that you need to do aliyah in order to be religious. If you're going to be more religious by living in Israel, good for you, move. But if you're going to be less religious, or you don't have a job over there, you don't have a way to make livelihood, or it's going to create marriage problems, and you're already 
religious here, you live in a decent community here, you don't have an obligation to move to Israel. What you do have an obligation to do is to move your heart towards the direction of Hashem. And to do tshuva. Because it says here in the Pasuk that once we do tshuva, Hashem will gather us from all the people from where He scattered us. If you're dispersed, we'll be at the end of heaven. Meaning if you're literally in the corner of the world, from there, Hashem your God will gather you in and from there, He will take you. Hashem your God will bring you to the land that your forefathers possessed and you shall possess it. He will do good to you and make you more numerous than your forefathers. Hashem your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring to love Hashem your God with all of your heart and all of your soul that you may live. So here we see first and foremost the Ramban says that here is the source for the mitzvah of tshuva. Mitzvah from the Torah to do tshuva. Who is this mitzvah for? Is this mitzvah of doing tshuva just for the reshaim? Is doing tshuva only for wicked people? Is doing tshuva only for the secular people that just started believing in God last week? Who is tshuva for? Tshuva is for all of us. Tshuva is for everyone. Tshuva is for everyone. It's not a chidush. It's a very basic foundational belief from Judaism. Every single one of us, whether we were born religious, or whether a rabbi or a student, doesn't make a difference. Every single Jew needs to do tshuva on a daily basis for something. There's no such thing as a person doesn't sin. If you've officially stopped sinning, most likely you're no longer in this world because there's no purpose for you. You've become an angel. That doesn't mean that it's okay to sin. The point is that we need to do tshuva for the sins. But he also says that here, if you do tshuva, Hashem will bring you from all the corners of the world. And part of the things that will happen as a result of the tshuva is that He's going to circumcise your heart. What does it mean to circumcise your heart? You can't really do a brit milah for the heart. So what's circumcise your heart? This is also one of the sources for the teachings about, the mystical teachings about klipa. I'm sure you all have heard the term klipa, which is like having a shell on top of your soul. Now this shell, this spiritual shell, is what makes it difficult for many people to do tshuva. And the reason why is because this shell is something that's built by our own sins. Every single time a person makes a sin, the shell gets thicker. There's another layer, another layer, another layer. Which means that a few things happen as a result of this klipa. Number one, they become more numb to sin. When a person steals a piece of bubble gum when he's five, six, seven years old, the first time he ever did it, got really excited, really scared at the same time, even though it's only five cents. Second time he stole a piece of gum, not as excited, but still scared. Third time he stole, not excited at all, and practically not scared. 
by the fourth and fifth time, excitement is not even part of it. He just wants gum. And he's not scared of getting caught at all. If somebody doesn't stop this kid and start teaching him manners and good midot, 20 years later, he's going to steal millions of dollars from people. And he's not going to feel bad. And he's not going to be scared. Why? Because each time he stole, he became more numb. And he needed more. He needed to push the envelope more. He needed to take line further. The klipa got thicker. Stealing was no longer a problem. So I need to steal more. And more. And more. And that's why you see sometimes people that look perfectly religious, perfectly based on the exterior, do heinous crimes. You're like, how does a guy stay religious and steal 50, 100 million dollars from people? How did he live with himself for so many years being such a thief? How did he do this? How did she do this? Simply, this was one thing they've been doing the whole long, the whole time. This is not all along they've been doing it. This is not something that happened overnight. It started from childhood. It started from teenagehood. It started with something small, with petty crime, and no one said anything. They stole a piece of apple, and their mom, when she found out that they stole an apple, she didn't say anything. A woman came to Arabi again one time, and she started crying to the Rav, and she said, I have such a big problem. I have a problem. He says, yes, My son doesn't want to be religious. Doesn't want to do anything. Started smoking on Shabbat. Started driving. Wait, hold on. When you you saw you saw him? Well, Rabbi again says, wait, wait. You saw your son smoking on Shabbat? She says, Yeah, yeah, I saw him. It's not just not just not I saw him. He says. You saw your son smoking on Shabbat? She says, yes, for the Rabbi. She's confused. Why is he asking this question? He said, if you saw your son smoking on Shabbat and you didn't pass out, then it's your fault. If you saw your son violating Shabbat and you didn't pass out, it's your fault. Why? That means if you saw somebody violate Shabbat, and it didn't bother you, and if it's your son, to the extent where you literally passed out, that means you yourself are not 100% aware of what Shabbat is. So obviously, it's your fault, your son, obviously. If you don't know, how's your son going to know? If your whole Shabbat was based on Chulint, and Jachnun, that's your whole Shabbat. All of Shabbat, the whole neighbor knows, Oh, Mrs. Uh, such and such, she has the best chulant in town and gefilte fish too on the side if you're a little Ashkenaz. You want gefilte fish, she'll have it. You want chulant, she'll have it. You want uh, chamin, she'll have it. Everything you have, it's like a restaurant. Your, your house is known as the restaurant of the eel. But the Torah, Shiu Torah, Chachamim coming to the house, she will not. No, no, that's, that's for other people. That means that your Shabbat is just makes your house into a restaurant. If your house is a restaurant, that's not Shabbat. If you saw your son or daughter violate Shabbat and you didn't pass out, 
It's your fault. Why? Because you never taught them what Shabbat was. You taught them how to run a restaurant. Here, honey, if you want to run a restaurant for free, 20 years from now, this is what you do. You slave for three days to cook all the chulin so everybody can eat enough for a year, and you give it to them for free just so they can make comments against you anyway 10 minutes later after they finish eating that it was too salty, it was too sweet, it was too dry, it was too wet, and they don't appreciate it anyway, but you could do it for free anyway because it makes you feel good, and you kind of look good to the public and so on. But what's Shabbat, Imam? No, no, let's focus on the chun. Pay attention. Pay attention. Your rabbi in school is going to teach you about what Shabbat is. If you saw your kid violating Shabbat and you didn't pass out, it's your fault. It's only because you didn't know. You didn't know yourself. How are you going to teach? The mitzvah of tshuva rabotai is for all of us. All of us to finally understand what does it mean Shabbat. All of us to understand what it means a sin. A simple sin. Tiny sin. Big sin. If you saw a sin happening and you didn't pass out, that means you have no idea what you're watching. You'll notice as you get closer and closer to Hashem, you make more mitzvot. If those mitzvot are pure, if those mitzvot are pure, like the Pasuk says, Bekol Levavecha Bekol Nafshecha, that you return to Hashem with all of your heart and all of your soul, like it says in this Pasuk, then He will circumcise your heart. What does it mean that if you return to Hashem with all of your heart and all of your soul so He can circumcise your heart? As you do mitzvot, as you do tshuva, Hashem breaks the peel, breaks the klipa, He peels it, He takes layers off. So what does it mean that He's taking layers off? You start becoming much more sensitive to what's going on around you. You start becoming much more sensitive when you pray to Hashem. You start becoming much more sensitive to Am Yisrael, to the Zulat. You see Am Yisrael sinning and you want to cry. You see a Jew suffering and you want to cry. You think about a Jew, maybe he's suffering, you start crying. All of a sudden you became a little teddy bear. Why are you crying, honey? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't know, maybe somebody's suffering, doesn't have food for Shabbat. People always ask, the tzaddikim, you see them, somebody comes to them, they start crying, they don't know the person. A woman came to Ravavadya on a Friday. They told her, listen, it's already Friday, he's going to be with the family, then he's learning, it's too late, he can't. He can't see you. She starts hysterical, crying, please, please, let me see the Rav, please. She begs, she, she begs. They make an exception. They bring her to Rav Vadya, and he's never seen her before. She's never seen him before. They've never seen each other before. She tells him one thing, literally, a minute. He cried the whole time with her. For hours they cried together. No one knows what happened. All they know is none stopped crying by the Rav. He cried so much with Am Yisrael when he saw people that towards the end of his life, the family said no more people. Can't see people. 
killing him. He sees people, he doesn't know them, but they come, they tell him their problems. My son is this, my daughter is this, my this is this. He doesn't know them. He never heard of them. Until now, they tell him the problems, he starts crying just like them. You guys heard about uh, the, the, the uh, soldier that was hostage for many years, Gilad Shalit. Famous story is after, finally, Baruch Hashem, he was freed. Everyone saw that he went to Ravadya. And everybody asked, why Ravadya, out of all people? Why did his father take him to Ravadya? Why Ravadya? It's not like they were close, like they weren't like religious family, or like, why Ravadya, out of all people? They asked the father, why? He says, because he cried with me. I went, he didn't give me a blessing, everything is going to be okay. He cried with me. We cried together. Cried together. When a person does tshuva, he becomes more sensitive. If you're seeing that you're not becoming more sensitive, that means there's much more work to do. It doesn't mean you're not doing tshuva, it just means there's much more work to do. But to get rid of that klipa, to get rid of that peel, First and foremost, we have to stop adding to it by making sins. Stop adding to it. Second of all, we have to start working on ourselves, making sure that what we're doing is from our heart. We're not spiritually lazy. And we have to constantly be told, oh, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. We constantly get instructions like three-year-olds. Find something to do. And if you're doing it, be the best. Be the best at this mitzvah. Be the best one. It's worth it to be the best. And the reason why, somebody made a very, very smart comment on one of the videos. He says that the threshold for being a religious Jew in this generation keeps getting higher and higher. Meaning it's becoming more and more difficult to coast as a Jew. Just coast and do it. And the reason why is because it's so easy to fall that if you're just doing the bare minimum, just to get by, you go to Beknesset just to pray, not really because you care. You put filin on, but you can't wait to take them off. You already looked at the watch, but you just got to Beknesset. You got to the shiur, but you're not mentally prepared. You don't really care. You're just here because now you're showing face. Get the shoe. I'm here though. You can tell everybody. I went to the shoe toy yesterday. What'd you learn? I'll watch it on YouTube. I'll let you know. But you were there though, no? Yeah, I was there, but I don't remember. I was really tired. I was really tired. So I don't remember. So why don't you, why don't you take notes? Yeah, I took some notes. Where are the notes? I don't know. I think I left them in the car. I think it's in the car. You left the diamond in the car? No, I left the notes. Oh, so you left the diamond in the car? No, it's the notes. Oh, so your notes are not the diamonds? Oh, so don't take them. Throw them in the garbage. If your notes for Torah are not diamond, throw them in the garbage. It's not notes. It's garbage. It's like the receipt you get from the deli after you buy Kit Kat bar. You throw it in the garbage. If your Torah notes are not diamonds, they're garbage. Throw them in the garbage. You don't appreciate your Torah notes? Throw them in the garbage. That means you didn't learn anything. A monkey could also write, by the way. As a matter of fact, I once saw an elephant write. I saw, I'll show you a video. Proof. 
I saw an elephant draw an elephant. I'm dead serious. I'll show you a video. An elephant drew an elephant. They gave him a little drawing thing. They gave him a little brush. The elephant drew an elephant. He's not getting Olam Abado for drawing an elephant. You're also not getting Olam Abado just for writing notes if you don't remember anything. It's the same thing as you drew an elephant. The elephant in you, same place. If your notes are not diamonds, it's garbage. If your learning is not diamonds, it's garbage. Why? Shlomo HaMelech says, you have to chase it like you chase diamonds, like you chase treasure. If you're not chasing the emet, you're not chasing Torah, like you're chasing treasure, you're watching a movie. That's why Rabotai, if you have to understand, you have to understand this. This parasha comes right before Rosh Hashanah. This parasha, this Mishnah comes right before Rosh Hashanah. Hashem is trying to teach us something critical. He's trying to tell us if you're going to do it, if you're going to come back to me, if you're going to do tshuva, do it like you're supposed to. Put your heart into it. Put your back into it. Do something. Don't constantly wait there like a postema. Some imbecile just waits there doing nothing all day. What, do you, what should I do? What should I do? Look in a book. Open a book. Figure out what to do. If you worked for a company and the company had a, the, the minutest chance of success and they saw you warming one of their chairs, by the way, you get fired. You don't get paid for warming a chair. They could put the chair in the microwave. It's cheaper. Find something to do. Find something to learn. Find something to do. Because that is going to get you there. But a person that gets to 60 years old and doesn't realize this is already getting to a point where he's running out of time. At 70 years old, the person attains what's called ripe old age. David Melech died at the age of 70 years old and it says... Just as it says in this, in this Mishnah, Ben Shivim Le Seva, a 70 year old attains ripe old age, says that King David died Beseva Tova, not only at 70 years, but good 70 years. Chronicles 1, chapter 29, verse 28. But Seder Ayom says Seva also means something else. Seva also is related to the tshuva. Seva comes from the same root for the word tshuva, where a man realizes that his days are now numbered, and he starts feeling the urge to do tshuva. And the Magen Avot quotes an old philosopher that said once that when a person's hair turns white, these are the messengers of death. The Baalei Musal used to say that every time a man or a woman get a white hair, it's like getting a message from Shemaim. Your time's coming up. Every time you get a new white hair, and Shemaim is saying, soon. <laughs> Bemed. 
Every time a person gets a white hair, don't pluck it. First of all, it's not allowed. It's a womanly thing to do. For men I'm talking about. To pluck out white hair is a womanly thing to do. It's not allowed. Second of all, what's the matter with you? You're plucking hairs. What are you? And third of all, it's a reminder. They're calling you in Shemaim and saying, see you soon. <laughs> see you soon, son. Why is it good to know see you soon? Why? Why is it good to see a white hair on your chin? Why? Because you do tshuva, if you understand what it means. If you understand that your time is numbered in this world, you're forced to do tshuva. You're forced to do tshuva. David Amelas did not know when he's going to die. But Hashem told me you're going to die on Shabbat. And David, David Amelach knew that regardless of who, what, when, and how, the only way the Yetzirah can have power over him is if he's not learning Torah. Because anytime he learns Torah, the Yetzirah is scared of him. Just like the Gemara in Masechet Brachot says, Barati Yetzirah, Barat Torah Tavlin. I created the Yetzirah that's big, that's smart, that's strong, and is better than you in every single way, shape, or form. But I created the Torah as a, porsh, as a potion to kill him. Now everybody knows this. We've said it a million and a half times. Most likely we've said it in every lecture. Most likely every other rabbi said it in every lecture. Everybody knows the Yetzirah, Yetzirah, Yetzirah. How come we keep falling for him though? How come every time we get a letter in the mail, it doesn't look so right, it's a debt collector, or it's a disc collector, or something's wrong, and Yetzirah tries to interfere in some way or another in our life. Our wife yells at us, our husband yells at us, the kids spill all the pasta on the floor, the IRS knocks on your door, something happens, the Yetzirah falls. How come, how come we fall every time? How come? How come the Yetzirah doesn't fall? Do you ever ask yourself that? How come the Yetzirah keeps going, even if you beat him? The Gemara says the Yetzirah is like a fly on your heart. No matter how many times you shoo him away, he's still coming back like a fly. And why in your heart? Because he tries to steer your heart in the wrong direction. How come the Yetzirah doesn't stop? Why is the Yetzirah like a fly? How come he doesn't just give up? He says, you know what, this guy... He gives Shuret Torah. He probably believes half the stuff he says at least. So might as well just leave him alone. Let me go deal with a bunch of criminals somewhere else. You know, the guys that are selling cocaine in the street. They're much better customers for me. How come he doesn't go there? Why is he here? Why? How come he doesn't give up? Says Torah, Torah Tavlin. If you're going to learn Torah, Yetzirah runs away. So how come right after you finish learning Torah, he shows up? In fact, right when you start learning Torah, you want to for sure guarantee, see Yetzirah for sure, open a Gemara in the middle of the day. Open a Gemara in the morning. Open a Gemara in the... Anytime you open a Gemara, Yetzirah shows up. All of a sudden, your phone blows up. There's a bunch of... A million and a half people want to talk to you. All of a sudden. They don't want to talk to you for five years. All of a sudden, they all call you at the same time. All of a sudden, your wife needs your time. All of a sudden, your kids, they're here and they're there and they're jumping on you. All of a sudden, the bill showed up. All of a sudden, the landlord... 
What happened? Where were you guys before I opened the Gemara? Where were you guys before I had the Shi'ur Torah? Where were you guys? I just had a Shi'ur Torah. Nobody was here. Shi'ur Torah started. Shem Rachem. 5,000 missionaries showed up online. How? They weren't doing anything. I started Shi'ur Torah. It goes on Facebook Live. I have to block them on a regular basis. What? You don't have any other people in the world to bother? You have to bother my little Shi'ur Torah? Where do they show up, these people? How come the Yetzirah doesn't, doesn't stop? We need to know it. We need to know the answer because we can learn a lot from the Yetzirah. Believe it or not, we can learn a lot from the Yetzirah. I once said, and my rabbi says it's a mate. I once said, the difference between us and the Yetzirah is the Yetzirah has emunah. The difference between us and the Yetzirah is the Yetzirah has bitachon. We maybe have some emuna, but we don't have any bitachon. Why? The Yetzirah knows God. We believe in God. That's the problem. Yetzirah knows that Hashem is El Melech Neeman. Yetzirah knows that Hashem gave him a job and Hashem delivers on his promise. He knows for sure that Hashem will punish the wicked. He knows for sure that Hashem will reward the righteous. He knows for sure that there are certain things that need to be done. And he never ever gives up because he knows God. We believe in God. Believe means that we believe Him up to a certain extent. Until we don't believe. Until we're not so sure. We're not so sure. We don't have that much bitachon, that much confidence. We believe that He helps, but maybe we don't have the confidence that He's going to help us. He's going to help other people. We believe that He's glorious and He does all these wonderful things, but we don't really know for sure and have all the confidence that He really cares about whether I eat this or I eat this. Yetzirah knows. We believe. That's the problem. The Yetzirah continues to do His job day and night without ever giving up. And He will never give up. Why? Because he has knowledge of God. We, Rabotai Yekarim, barely have any belief. But the Torah Kedoshat tells us, You must know your God, not believe in Him. We have to work on ourselves to get to knowledge. How do you get to knowledge? Learn from the Yetzirah. If he's confident enough to know that God wants you to do something, he's going to come and interfere. So the fact that he's interfering, that's enough knowledge for you to keep going. If he is already there at 6 o'clock in the morning telling you, go back to sleep, go back to sleep, go back to sleep, you answer like the Chafetz Chaim answered him. 
says, you're right, I want to go back to sleep. But then I look at you, and you're up. How come you're up working for Hashem, and how can I not be working for Hashem? You said, I'm old. I'm only 70, 80, 90 years old. You're 5,000. And you're already up. If Yetzirah has enough understanding and knowledge that Hashem wants you to do something, He's going to interfere. And if He is here to interfere, that is what you should base your emunah on to get it to bitachon, to get it to knowledge of Hashem. Because if He's there, that means that it's He knows it's going to happen. He knows there's something good here. He knows there's something good here. He's going to interfere. If He's not interfering, if you do a campaign and you raise a million and a half dollars in 24 hours, somehow, and you tell people it's for Kiruv, and you actually got the money, by the way, you're not doing Kiruv. By the way, Yetzirah didn't even bother you. Why? Because if it was really for Kiruv, you're not raising a million and a half dollars in a day. It'll never happen. It'll never happen. Someone came to the Chafetz Chaim one time and he said, Kvodarav, I don't understand. I saw, I went, I tried to raise some money for the yeshiva. And I went from door to door, door to door. A dollar here, two dollars here. The Gvil gave me eight dollars. But then I see some, by the time I finally raised a few shekels, I see... Mr. Smith from the next neighborhood just got a grant for $100 million to open a university. Why is it that I have to travel half the world to raise a few measly shekels that are going to be spent by the time I got them? And Mr. Smith can get a $100 million grant to open some university that's going to teach people that they came from monkeys. How does there justice in the world? How does Hashem allow such things to happen? And the Chafetz Chaim answers him and he says, in the Torah, we have something called the places, the Miklat, where people that committed a, killed somebody by uh, accident, that want to escape the family from taking revenge against them of the person they killed, they can go to the mountains and hide there because the families are not allowed to go to the mountains. Iramiklat, the city of, I guess, uh, chambers where they uh, literally, these people are allowed, they protect them. Because if, let's say, for example, somebody was working with another person and he dropped a hammer from the roof. By accident, he dropped it. And it fell on his partner's head and he killed him. And he didn't do it on purpose. That doesn't change the outcome. The guy still died. According to Allah, if the family kills the guy that killed, let's say, their relative, they're not guilty. Why? There's rage there. They feel that they took revenge. So because of that... He's allowed to go and hide, and they're not allowed to go there. And he could stay. He has to stay there until the Kohen Gadol dies. He stays in Iramiklat. 
חפץ חיים says, Hashem told Moshe Rabbeinu to make sure to put a lot of signs to let people know where this Iramiklat is, where the mountains are, where they need to go. Put a lot of signs everywhere. But the Chachamim asked a question. How come he didn't tell Shlomo HaMelech to do the same thing with the Bet HaMikdash? To put a lot of signs all over Israel, make a right here, left there, right here, left there, you're going to get the Bet HaMikdash. Three miles down the road, make a right on this exit, Bet HaMikdash. Exit 47. Exit 26. How come? How come there's no signs for Bet HaMikdash? He says, from here we understand the mind of Hashem and what's Hashem's thinking. How? Our capabilities, of course. He says, when Hashem said, go hide in Ira Miklat to the guy that committed accidental murder, he's already getting punished because the fact that he has to leave everything, he has to go somewhere else, it's already enough of a punishment. It's not a, it's not a purposeful murder. If a purposeful murder, then it's death penalty. But it's accidental, but still there's a punishment and he has to go to the mountains for not having enough care, not having enough, uh, being careful enough. He's getting a punishment, he has to go. But that punishment is ends over there. Meaning that him getting embarrassed for being an accidental murderer, that's additional, he doesn't deserve that embarrassment. So that's why Hashem wanted him to know exactly where this city is so he doesn't have to stop anywhere and get lost and then have to be forced to knock on some door, or forced to ask somebody, hey, by the way, do you know where this uh, the, the city of refuge is? Do you know where the city of refuge is? And then somebody will say, oh, you want to go to the city of refuge? Oh, you're a murderer! Yeah, murderer! Abba, Abba, here's the murderer. He probably killed somebody. He wants to go to the city of refuge. Who goes to the city of refuge? The murderers! Murderer, murderer! So the guy's going to be embarrassed. He doesn't deserve that embarrassment. On the other hand, the Bet HaMikdash, no signs. Why no signs? Because Hashem wants them to knock on every door. He wants them to get lost. Why does He want them to get lost? Because He wants them to go knock on the door and say, Hey, mister, do you know where the Bet HaMikdash is? How do I get to the Bet HaMikdash from here? And then the little boy says, Abba, I want to go to Bet HaMikdash. Ah, oh, you know what? We should go to the Bet HaMikdash. We haven't been there in a while. Let's go. The next thing you know, they got lost so many times on the way to Bet HaMikdash, instead of two people, it's 30,000. That's the point. So the Chafetz Chaim tells a student, he says, you see, the university, Hashem doesn't want anyone to know about it. So he gives the guy a hundred million dollars in one shot. Just be quiet with your monkeys. Take your hundred million dollars, build your building, and live a purposeless life. Be quiet. But you, that are publicizing Torah, that are Mezakeh Rabim, that get Amisad to come back to their father in heaven, he doesn't just want you to fulfill the mitzvah of teaching and learning. He wants you to fulfill the mitzvah of sharing. Sharing the mitzvah by getting lost. And therefore you're going to go from house to house to house to house, $2, $10, $20, $100, $1,000. Little by little, one day you're going to get to the big amount, but also along the way, 30,000 people would have contributed to this big mitzvah. 
when a person reaches the age of 70, these are some of the things that he has to take into account. Because time is running out. By the time he's reached 80 years old, already shows that he has special strength to reach that age. But unfortunately, that strength starts to wither pretty fast. And this is a time where a person that has learned Torah can literally become like a malach. Because if he's learned Torah up to this point on a serious level, his body becomes so weak that his soul becomes the dominant force of his life at 80 years old. And that's why in the Gemara Maseret Psachim, it says that while the Ame'aretz, while the ignorant become bigger fools as they grow older, which is proven, the Chachamim become wiser and sharper as they go older. Now, even though the bodies of both wane, the bodies of both most of the time wither with age, regardless, they're all humans. Their ability to walk, their ability to move, their ability to run, their ability to take care of certain parts of themselves, almost everybody has major losses as they get older and older. But if you see the mind, the speaking ability, the sharpness, the cleverness of a Talmid Chacham at 95 years old versus a 95-year-old anyone, you see, you can't compare the two. In fact, if you compare the 95-year-old to a 20 or 30-year-old, the 20 or 30-year-old is like a monkey next to them. Why? Because they have already trained themselves with Torah and mitzvot and now they've gotten to the point where the desires they used to have are no more. So their body literally has become like an angel. All they have is Torah now. But the Torah still says they need to work on their midot day and night at this time. Why? Because they should never trust themselves even at 80 years old because someone by the name of Yohanan the Kohen Gadol who was actually a Kohen Gadol himself for 80 years. Not that he was 80 years old, he was a Kohen Gadol for 80 years. Still became a Kofel. After 80 years of being a Kohen Gadol. You know what being a Kohen Gadol is? Being a Kohen Gadol means you have to be so holy then you go to the Kodesh Kodeshim once a year on Yom Kippur. You pray with a million percent kavana, because if if there's one percent missing, you die on the spot, and the whole nation depends on you because their tshuva depends on you. Meaning, if you're thinking for a second, not you're thinking about baseball or basketball. If you're thinking about, you know, I'm not really sure if I close the door to the car on the way here. Oh, you know what did my wife say again? Oh, the kid is so cute. My kid's a real tzaddik. Like you say anything. Anything like that. Just a mindless thought. That's not 100% what you're supposed to. You're down the spot. So he was able to do this for 80 years straight. Imagine what kind of holiness he was. And the other Bet HaMikdash, we had 300 of them because they used to die every, every year. Because none of them were holy. 300 people died year after year they would die because none of them were holy. He was holy enough to make it 80 years. 
And yet the Torah teaches us, at his old age, he became a heretic. Became a heretic. Why? If you don't continue working on yourself day and night, you're going to break. The person will break. doesn't matter what age they are. And sometimes a person can break simply by the language they make. Not just doesn't necessarily always need to be action like uh, you know intimacy with uh, someone sparring to you or something like. No, it could literally be just a person learning Torah, learning Torah, learning Torah, and say, "Yeah, you know, this house I built it." You know the shishiva. Who do you think it's named after? Me. I did it. If it wasn't for me, would this be the shishiva be here? If it wasn't for me, would this organization be here? That's it. That's kfirah. That's kfirah. Oh, Rav, uh, you know, Rav Eliyashiv said uh, no wigs. Eh, it's okay, Rav Eliyashiv. Okay, I don't have to listen always to... Uh, Shalom, Yeli. Yeah, but you're a big rabbi. You should consider Chachamim. Yeah, I've been around. I've been around. I don't have to listen to all Chachamim. Just disrespecting the Chachamim. Saying Shalom, Yeli. A person can be a chofer. A person can much lose everything. Allah Abba in a second. It's so easy to lose it. You have to look much like if you're not constantly growing, you're not going to make it. Because the threshold keeps getting higher and higher and it's easier and easier to fall that if you're not growing and you're just playing with the gray area constantly, you're just barely making, you barely make it to Minyan, you barely make it to uh, learning the Shiul, you're barely learning your fifth you know, hour a day or something. You're barely doing the mitzvot. You barely have a kosher sukkah. You barely have a kosher matzah. Like you're just getting by. You're doing it. You're doing it. But you're just doing the basic, basic minimum. You never like push extra. Even when you can. That always can. But you never like push yourself. Like you could learn another 15 minutes. But like, no, I learned my 30 minutes already. It's enough. But you could learn 45. You have the energy. Yeah, I can. But I did my half hour. It's enough. It's enough. I did a half hour. It's enough. I did an hour. It's enough. I did an, two hours. I did two hours. What do you want from me? What do you want? All day. Wait a minute. I look at Kabi Akiva. Two hours I already learned. Yeah, but you have, do you have any more strength? Yeah. How much strength? I can do another 15 minutes. No, so do it. Yeah, I did two hours already. I did two hours. Two hours. A lot of time. I did two hours. You have 15 more 15 minutes of energy though left. Do 15 more minutes. Eh, I did enough. Let me see what's going on, on the internet. Shalom Yeli. That's the attitude. That's an attitude that destroys you. That's an attitude that destroys us because we're constantly trying to do just enough to get by. Just enough to get by. Now, even though that attitude, at least Alvayal all Alam Israel to do just enough to get by. The problem with that attitude is that it's very, very dangerous because if you're constantly just getting by in life, that also means that you can simply just fail and everything collapses just as easily because there isn't enough of a threshold, there isn't enough of a safety net. If a person goes, if he's in a business world and he just goes just to make enough to survive, he wants to be a teacher and he's going to make $40,000 a year because that's just enough for him to eat. Assuming he's going to be single for the rest of his life. 
or he's going to go work at some company and he's never going to ask for a promotion. He's just going to do whatever they say and make his, he's there for 20 years as a secretary, 20 years in the mailroom, 20 years he's doing something. He never changes. He's comfortable with his $55,000 a year. He's comfortable with his $70,000 a year because every year they add another five or $10,000 to his 401k. Every year he's able to take one vacation a year and he lives a very comfortable, peaceful life. The problem with that type of mentality is that you leave no room for error. When you just coast with the minimum and you never push yourself extra, you leave no room for error, meaning that as soon as there is a crash to the system that you have become accustomed to, everything that you've built goes to zero. And that is what happened to a lot of people that worked 30, 40 years at big companies. After the crash of 2007, many of them had to go back to work. And the reason why is because they literally built just enough to survive financially. Now, Le'avdil, even more so in the religious world, if a person just does just enough to get by, he just goes to the minyan whenever he needs to, and he gets to the Shia once a week, maybe twice a month, and he just barely does this, and he just barely does, but he does it. The problem with that system is that as soon as there is a test in his life, as soon as he has money problems, marriage problems, children problems, health problems, or countless other problems that are part of life, his just barely making it becomes the heck with it. I'm letting it all go. Why? Because you are in a gray area the whole time anyway. So as soon as you see that, ah, I was trying to do my best and it didn't work out anyway, might as well. You never get into it. You never built a cushion with anything. I'm not saying you need to be the biggest chassid in the world and be a machmir on every mitzvah. That we're not saying. But there are certain things you can push yourself to do extra. There are certain things you should push yourself to do extra. And that's what a person needs to do by, because by the time he gets to 80 years old, he's now stooped over. He's now a person that has almost missed out on his entire life unless he's chacham. And by the time he's tish'im lashuach, lashuach means he becomes stooped over. He doesn't have the physical abilities to do what he used to do. He doesn't have the physical abilities to push himself that extra 15 minutes that he was able to do when he was 25. To push himself to go to the shiur that he was able to do when he was 35. To push himself to do an extra mitzvah that he was able to do when he was 45. He can't do it anymore. All of those easy mitzvot when he was 25 are now impossible when he's 90. And then the Mishnah says, Ben That a person that reached a hundred years old is as if he was dead and passed away and ceased from the world. Because the person approaches the age of a hundred, unless he's a Talmit Chacham with an enormous amount of Siyat Dishmaya, his mental faculties and physical strength start to fail him. It's not just his, his uh, physical part, it's now his mental part. Unfortunately, in today's age, you will notice that Alzheimer's and dementia have become much, much more common even in younger ages. It's 60 years old, 55 years old, 65 years old. In the old days, it was much older ages. 
Now it's young people. I just found out somebody that is actually in their maybe late 50s. Late 50s, lost his mind. Doesn't remember his own kids. Why? Your brain is not meant to do accounting. Your brain is not meant to be a stock trader. Your brain is meant to do the will of Hashem. As soon as Hashem decides you're not using it anyway for this reason, He simply takes it away. So a person at 100 years old, unless he's glued to Torah and he has an enormous amount of blessing from Shemaim, he's one of the Gdolei Ador, now becomes physically and mentally unable. But the, the advantage of this age is that now he can focus on doing tshuva without even having any concern whatsoever that he will have physical desires that will get in the way. Because at a hundred years old, you simply do not have any physical desires. No eating, no drinking, no intimacy. Money doesn't mean anything to you anymore. Nothing. So it's an age to do tshuva if you make it there. But the difference is that a person needs to evaluate. Let's say you got to 100 and a secular person got to 100. Who had a better life? Let's say the secular person got to 100 years old and for every year that he lived, he had a million dollars. So at 100 years old, he's going to die with $100 million in the bank. And you, for every year that you lived 100 years, you have $1. So at 100 years old, you have 100 bucks. Who lived a better life? The guy with Torah or the guy without Torah? Now both are going to die and going to be put into a little box and then put in the ground, six feet under. Meaning that the bank account of uh, the rich one or the poor one are both meaningless. They can't help either person. They're dead. They say, oh yeah, but they bought schuyot, they bought schuyot. The reality is, if they didn't buy schuyot while they were alive, most likely they're not buying them after they're dead either. A person that waits to die before he has any merits is not going to have any merits even after he dies. So, you can't say, no, no, but because he has $100 million, he's going to do a lot of good things after it. If he didn't do a lot of good things while he was alive, he surely is not going to do a lot of good things when he's dead. So then you see, you compare examples. I told you guys a couple of weeks ago. When he died, he had 1,000 grandkids that he left behind. 1,000 grandkids. At the same time, he was 102 years old. At the same time, the Prime Minister of Israel, his father, Bibi Netanyahu's father, also died. Also at 102 years old. He left four grandkids. Now as far as money is concerned, I'm sure that Netanyahu had much more money than Eliashiv. But how much, how much is that money worth when he's in the kever right now? Still dealing with the punishment for all the sins that he made. Whereas Avel Yashiv is getting rewards for all the mitzvot that he did. Now even if you want to look at it without Olam Abba, you want to look at it in this world. Who lived a better life in this world? In every single circumstance you will see the religious guy, the one that was glued to Torah, always lived a better life in this world. Even with poverty, even with wealth, even with all of the things, still a better life. And the reason why is because the one that was religious, the one that was glued to Hashem, 
he knew his mission the whole time. He knew his purpose the whole time. He knew he woke up in the morning to serve Hashem. In the afternoon to serve Hashem. To eat to serve Hashem. To get power to serve Hashem. To drink to get power to serve Hashem. To be with the wife to bring kids to serve Hashem. To, to honor the wife to serve Hashem. It's a mitzvah. To learn to serve Hashem. To die to serve Hashem. He had a mission his whole life. And the mission stayed the same. It never changed. The secular guy, he had a new mission every week. Why did he have a new mission every week? Why did he have a new mission every week? Because he never knew the truth. He never really had a real mission. It's just based on the mood, based on the need, based on the desire, based on what's going on. So the whole, his whole life, he thinks, no, this is the emit. And then two weeks later, no, not a man anymore. I have to change it with something else. Oh no, this is the MS. This is this is, I, I, I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life. I'm gonna be this forever. And then three years later, yeah, no, I hate this. I, I hate it. I, I want to do something else. And he starts something else. Oh, this, this, this is it. I'm gonna be oh ten years later. I hate it. I can't take it. I gotta retire. And every few years the emet changes. And there's never ever level of content. This is also you'll see. A proof for all of those people that argue against the lacha by saying shalom yeli that peace will be upon me. I'll listen to me. You listen to you, and so on. Or the atheists, or the missionaries, they all have the same exact mentality. They all say what they want to say about what you're doing. Now nah, you shouldn't be so strict. No, nah, you shouldn't dress uh, like this. No, you shouldn't uh, be so modest. No, you shouldn't keep Shabbat. No, you should They always have something to say about your mitzvot. As soon as you tell them about their mitzvot, they lose, they lose their head. As soon as you tell them, listen, you really think you came from a monkey? Hey, listen, you really think that the rabbis that allow that you wear a miniskirt? Hey, you really think that God died and then came back to life like this J.C. Penny? Like all this stuff, all these beliefs, as soon as you tell them this stuff, they lose their mind. They lose their mind and they start like asking you and they constantly, they never leave you alone. Why? Why? Why are they always bothered by your existence? Because deep down inside, they know they're full of it. If you tell me right now, if you tell me right now, anything you want about the Torah, not you, some kufet comes over and says, no, I don't believe in the Torah. It wouldn't bother me one bit. Oh, you really believe that everything came from Adam? Yes. You don't, do you think it's illogical? No. You can say anything you want about Torah. It wouldn't bother me at all. Believe it, don't believe it, agree with me, don't agree with me. It makes no difference whatsoever. Because to me, it's knowledge. I know it's true. I don't believe it's true. Once you know something is true, you know it's true, nothing can steer it. It's knowledge. It's as if I know all of you are in front of me. No one can change that. You are in front of me. Even if you don't want to be. You're in front of me and I see you. They believe that their nonsense is true. They don't know it. So the fact that you know and you're so comfortable with your knowledge bothers them because they only believe. And they want you to believe. They need you to believe. Whereas you, you don't need them to believe. You don't need them to know anything. You care less. You want them to believe for their own benefit, but whether they do or they don't affects your life in zero ways. And that's why they're bothered. 
That's why you'll see constantly girls telling their girlfriends, why are you so modest, instead of why are you not modest. Instead of telling her, why are you so not modest? No, they complain to the girl that's really modest. Why are you so modest? It's telling, telling the guy, why don't you come to shul too? I tell him, why are you going to the shul? That guy again, he screams all the time and he talks about gay and in every shul. Why? Because the Yetzirah doesn't give up. Because the Yetzirah has knowledge. That knowledge was their knowledge, what they're actually supposed to have. But since they have only shtuyot, they have, they have only nonsense, knowledge doesn't exist for falsehood. Knowledge doesn't exist for falsehood. You can never know that falsehood is true. It's not possible, because it's not true. Where it's true, you can know. True, you can know. So this is the journey of a Jew. This is what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to think. In essence, at this generation, we have to be very, very careful not to coast... Not to just think, oh yeah, let me just get by, let me just do this, let me just do that. Because this Torah, as Moshe Rabbeinu tells us at the end of this parasha, לאמור מי יעבר לנו את עבר הים ויקחה עלינו, וישמיענו אותה ונעשנה. כי קרוב אליך הדבר מאוד בפיך ובלבבך לעשותו. ראו נתתי לפניך היום את החיים ואת הטוב, ואת המוות ואת הרע. אשר אנוכי מצוויך היום לאהבה את אדוני אלוהיך, ללכת בדרכיו, ולשמור מצוותיו וחוקותיו ומשפטיו. וחייתה ורביתה ובירכתה אדוני אלוהיך בארץ אשר אתה בא שמה לרשתה. השם יתברך gives משה prophecy of all prophecies that is relevant to every single generation needless to say our generation. And he tells them for this commandment that I command you today it's not hidden from you and it's not distant. It's not in heaven for you to say, who can ascend to the heaven for us to take it for us so that we can listen to it and perform it. Nor is it in the sea for you to say, who can cross to the other side of the sea and take it for us so that we can listen to it and perform it. Rather, the matter is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart to perform it. So first, Moshe Rabbeinu tells them, no one can ever say that doing tshuva is too difficult. That you have to climb some mountain which would require you to have uh, physical abilities. Or that you'd have to cross the ocean, that you'd have to have extraordinary strength. Or that you need to travel far away to find chachamim. No. The matter is very near to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart to perform it. Meaning, it's in your mouth because you already were taught. The Gemara in Masechet Nedarim, I'm sorry, Masechet Nida, page 30, says that the baby is taught the entire Torah in the womb of his mother during the nine months that he's there. That's why when a Jew hears Torah for the first time, 
it's not completely foreign to him. And the more he learns Torah, the more he becomes familiar with it, not as if it's new, but rather he's familiar with it. He's heard it before. He's heard this. I, 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 it's kind of, this makes sense. I don't know why it makes sense, but it sounds familiar. Because the knowledge already is in his mouth, meaning it's already in him. It's in your heart to do it, meaning it's easy for you to do it because you were created for it. You were created to do tshuva. Your natural ability will allow you to do tshuva. So even though you want to say, no, it's hard for me, it's hard for me to do it, you're lying to yourself. It's not hard for you to do it. It's hard for you to get rid of the sin because you like the sin. It's not hard for you to put a mitpachat on your on your rosh. It's not hard to put a scarf over your head. It's actually easier than a wig. Why? You don't have to do your hair. You don't have to go to the barber. You don't have to go to the hairdresser. You don't have to clean it. You just put the mitpachat finished. You you get bored of it. You get a new one for five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars. Much cheaper. Much easier to do. No, but it's hard for me. It's hard for me. No, it's not that it's hard for you. It's hard for you. Because you're addicted to the sin. Because you like the sin. You like being immodest. You like the attention it gives you. You like eating non-kosher. Because you like non-kosher food. And so on and so forth. So Moshe Rabbeinu tells us, this is easy for you. You were created for it. You know all of it. And you were created, and this is your natural ability. And you should, I place you here today, before you life and good, death and evil. Moshe Rabbeinu tells us that he places us here. You have good and you have life. You have death and you have evil. Meaning, and we should choose life. Of course we choose life. But he says, no, no, you have to understand. Life is Torah. And Torah is good. Unlike what our Yetzirah tells us, Torah is bad, but Torah is good. And we're not talking about life is referring to Olam Abba. Good is referring to Olam Azeh. People think that if you live a life of Torah, you're only going to enjoy it one day in the next world. Wrong. The closer you are to Torah, the more you actually enjoy this world. The more you enjoy this world. Because a person without Torah is suffering 24 hours a day for no reason. He has no idea why he's suffering because he has no purpose. But at least a person that has Torah has a reason for everything that's happening, whether it's good or it's bad. And that's why the parasha ends this way. Where, not, where Moshe Rabbeinu tells us that there's nothing in the world that's actually easier and more natural for us to do than to do tshuva. Because that's what we were created. That's why we were created. And if we treat the Torah like it's diamonds, when we have a mitzvah opportunity, we chase it like it's diamonds, then we'll perform it like it's diamonds. Then we'll connect to it like it's diamonds. And that way... We can live an entire life Hashem, that's full and it's happy and it's extraordinary with or without material wealth, with or without all the other stuff. And that Rabotai is the most important. Any questions? Same price. Late. Oh.
say that you say that this world is in Shabbat. That's what, in essence, the Chachamim uh, that talk about the end of times, and, and, and even though we're not allowed to uh, pinpoint the time of when Mashiach is going to come, they uh, use the uh, time that this world has been around in order to explain how we know that this is the last generation. That David Melech says that each thousand years is like, each thousand years for man is like one day for Hashem. And the Chachamim say that this is the last world, the seventh world out of all of the worlds. And the Mashiach will come, the ultimate salvation will come before Shabbat. So what does it mean before Shabbat? Is he going to come on a, what, on a, on a first day, on a second day, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, what day is going to come? He says, no, they calculate based on the years. So just like each thousand years in our life is one day in Hashem's, uh, in Hashem's eyes. Not that he's bound to time, but that's what David Melech explains. So every thousand years is counted as one day, which means that 5,778 years have passed. So 5,000 means that five days out of the week have completed. That means that Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, complete. Five days are completed out of seven days, right? But then we still have 770, almost 79, right? So now 750, 750 is three quarters of a thousand, right? It's three quarters of the full one. So what is three quarters of 24 hours? Three quarters of 24 hours, three quarters of 24 is 18. What's 18 in, in clock? Six. Six. But now we still have, from 50 to 79, we still have 29. I did the calculation one time, is that uh, it's approximately every 41 years. 41 years rounded off to the next, to the next uh, number. Next hour. Every 41 years is the next hour. So you see here that at 29 years, we are approximately three quarters of the next hour. So we're now at 6.45 p.m. on Friday. We're 6.45 p.m. on Friday. Now when does Shabbat come? In Am Yisrael, Am Yisrael, it changes throughout the year. It depends on the Jewish hour. It depends where you are in the world. But Chachamim say it's based on Israel. So even if you calculate it as if, let's say, for example, Shabbat comes in at the latest time in Israel throughout the whole year, let's say, I don't know, 8 o'clock or 7.30, that still means that it's within our lifetime. Because every hour is 41 years. So even if you go from 6.45 to the latest, let's say 7.45, maximum is 41 years, uh, it's meaning our lifetime. We can't, again, we cannot put a pinpoint exactly when and who and what, but the point being is that you can see here how the sages were able to use the knowledge of the different worlds from before, the days of uh, in, in, in relation to Hashem uh, and, and Mashiach, and connect all of those dots to have an understanding of why we must do tshuva immediately. Because Shabbat's about to come in. And it said, Mashiach will come before Shabbat. So even if Shabbat is in 41 years from now, it doesn't mean that it's 41 years from now. Because Mashiach is coming before Shabbat. Waiting, Mashiach is like us, he just gets into Shabbat last minute. 
Or you think he just gets in last minute, Mashiach, uh, maybe he's machmir, he brings Shabbat an hour early. So the point is, Avotai, is that it's uh, all of this knowledge is always connected to something. That's the genius of the Chachamim. That's the genius of the Chachamim. Next question. Judaism. Well, a woman I mentioned on Sunday, uh, Sunday Shur, I, um, a woman has a responsibility according to the Torah of bringing up the home, taking care of the children, helping her husband learn Torah, that's our responsibility. Because that responsibility is so extraordinary and takes so much time and effort, a woman is not obligated to fulfill mitzvot that are bound to time. So she's not obligated to late tefillin. She's not obligated to pray with a minyan. She's not obligated to do a lot of mitzvot that are bound to time. She's much less mitzvot, very similar to a child. That's not because she's inferior, Chas Shalom. It's actually because she's superior. She is the foundation of the home. That's why in the Gemara, another name that some of the sages call their wives is Bait. What does Bait mean? Home. Meaning, they didn't talk about, oh, I'm home. They said, Where, where's my home? Wherever my wife is. That's my home. She's my Bait. A person that has Shlom Bait, that means that his Bait is happy. Can't be a can't be a shlom bite without a bite that's happy, without a wife that's happy. So, the wife has an extraordinary obligation to make sure that the Torah continues from generation to generation, that the holidays are celebrated. Now, if a woman goes to the synagogue, like many women do today, then first and foremost, she'll realize that the synagogue is not what she thought it was. Meaning that people are not quiet, especially on the woman's side. Because even if the women themselves are quiet, sometimes once in a blue moon they're quiet, they're kids that they brought to shul with them because now somebody has to bring the kids. You can't just leave the kid by themselves. He's three, four, five, six, seven years old. So you brought the kid with you. So the kid came with the wife also to the shul and the kid is not quiet. So you have to give him crackers and bamba and beastly and bamba and he makes the noises with the crackers and he makes the noises with the wrappers and he's jumping on your head, and he's jumping everywhere, so then no one has any attention, so the women themselves, that are feeding the kids as if they never ate in their life, they start chit-chatting, oh, you use Bamba? No, I use Beastly. Yeah, he likes Beastly. Yeah, he likes Bamba. Oh, I like your dress. Oh, I... They start chit-chatting, and what they realize is that by the time the prayer is over, they forgot to pray. They talked a lot, but they forgot to pray. But now they have to run home. They have to run home, why? Because they have to prepare the meal. That's the, the meal that they cooked and cleaned the last few days, they have to actually set the table. So they get to the home and they set the table and in reality they missed on their chance to fulfill their obligation. What is their obligation on the holiday? Obligation on the holidays, number one, prepare the home. Prepare the home for the holiday. Make it look good. Make delicious food. If you don't know how to cook, order delicious food. Make sure the house looks like you're ready for the king of kings to show up. 
make sure that there is good mood, even more important than the way things look, and whether there's gold chandeliers or they're made out of plastic, that doesn't matter as much. The feeling needs to be as if you're ready for royalty to show up. You're ready for the king of kings to judge you right here. Why? Because there's a good mood in the house. There's delicious food, there's delicious environment, everyone's happy, all the kids are clean, all the kids are happy, the husband is happy, you're happy, there's a good mood. That's the most important thing, there's a good mood, there's a good vibe in the house. If there's no good vibe in the house, you miss the whole holiday. It's Tisha, might as well be Tisha B'Av. What happens a lot of times, women are so into the cooking and the cleaning and the cooking and the cleaning, they want to show off. That they cooked and they cleaned and they cooked and they cleaned. So what do they do? They bring the whole neighborhood to the house. So the whole neighborhood comes to the house and they have to show off. Look, I cooked and I cleaned and I cooked and I cleaned. And you eat this? Did you eat that one? Did you eat this one? Eat, 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 eat. And they feed and force feed everybody to eat her. Deli- it's delicious food. But she forgets to eat. And she's tired and miserable at the end of the night because she didn't even have a chance to pray. She didn't have a chance to eat. She didn't have a chance to enjoy the holiday because she's too busy feeding everybody and making sure they know that she's a really good chef. But she forgot to enjoy the holiday. She forgot to enjoy the family. And what ends up happening is the holiday is over. It's like, wow, what a waste. She hates the holiday now. Why? Because she didn't enjoy one minute of it. So a lot of people that are really, really kind for the wrong reasons... They want to bring guests. If you're going to enjoy the guests and the holiday, bring the guests. But if there's even a, a 1% chance of the guests interfering with the vibe of the house, let them find somewhere else. Let them find somewhere else. Quite frankly, holidays, I know people like to invite family and everything. I've never met anyone who says that's a good idea after it happened. It's always fighting and disagreements. Oh, and she didn't do this. Oh, and she didn't help me. Oh, he didn't do this. He didn't cheat. Everybody has problems after it. Rarely do you ever say, why, such a great holiday. I saw my whole family. Everybody's doing great. We had a great time. Rarely. It's always like, yeah, do you see what she was wearing? You see how cheap he was? He didn't even contribute. You see this? You see. After everybody leaves, everybody says, Lashon Ara. Everybody hates each other after the holiday. I'm never doing it in their house again. That's a common saying after the holidays. I'm never doing it in their house again. I'm never going to see them in again next year. Same thing. So, if you're going to invite company, make sure you like the people. And not just like them, like you actually want them to be there. And not you're just trying to show off. A lot of people try to show off. Oh, you're supposed to be together. It's family. Who said? Who said? Be with family, meaning you're supposed to be with people you like. Not be with family if you don't like them. You have to like each other. There's no mitzvah forcing yourself to be with your siblings or cousins that you haven't seen in 17 years just because he's your cousin. Especially if your cousin is Esav. There's no mitzvah being with bringing Esav to your house. Behemet, guys, behemet. A lot of people make this mistake and they, have, they, they, hate, they hate Judaism after this. Because they do things that are not necessary. Because they think they're supposed to do it. First and foremost, you should know. Rule of thumb. If you cannot enjoy yourself just with your family alone, meaning with your wife, with your husband and children alone, there's something wrong in your family. If you need other people, there's something wrong in that relationship. There's something wrong if you need other people. 
But you want other people, it's a different story. But if you feel you need, in order to enjoy the holiday, you need other people, it's a problem. It's a very serious problem. It's a problem. Why? You're married. You're supposed to be able to enjoy each other. Second thing is, if anyone you're going to invite to your house is going to add to the fun and the joy, invite them. If they're annoying and obnoxious and they cause traumatizing uh, experiences to the family, why are you inviting them? Oh, he has nowhere else to go. Okay, you should learn how to behave then. What do I tell you? You should learn by now. Yeah, but he's already 70. He hasn't learned. Okay, so I'll learn by 80. 